Thanks for coming back this week. I'm Aaron Goodwin. I want to talk to you about a new handyman company in town made up of veterans and local people from here in Manteca. They are called Trusted Sons, America's Handyman Company. Have you ever heard that old adage, never try to fool Mother Nature? It was a line used back in the day a lot. Well, it still rings true, especially in the valley. One day sunshine, the next freezing cold, out of nowhere wind and rain, fog, wetness. You know, all of that can do a number on your home and your possessions. We get extremes here, and sometimes you have needs in certain seasons. Recently, the high winds that battered us here took out a lot of things in people's yards, not just tumbleweeds here and there, but when it was all said and done, everybody was getting hit up for fix-it needs. Fences blowing down due to the inclement weather. You know, water damage and sun damage, eventually high winds will take out your fence. It'll blow over. You'll need someone honest to be there. And that's where the trusted sons come into play. It's not just the name. You call the number, you talk to Kelly, and they will send someone honest, hardworking, and local. Trusted Sons is trying to help out by rebuilding the handyman perception, restoring your faith in good people by hiring veterans and locals to remedy each situation you may have. Search trustedsons.com or call 209-269-2727, 209-269-2727. Call Trusted Sons, America's handyman company. You ever heard of someone who's done so much you could never squeeze even the basics into nothing less than a two-hour show? Back in June, I had an idea for a podcast. I've done an old-school music podcast. I had the idea. I do this podcast now, but I've been thinking of content to create. And I want to tell this guy's story. I named the podcast The Modern Day Minuteman. I went out and sat down with this guy, collected a bunch of audio, and he's just so busy in his working life, we haven't been able to hook up. A lot of people on vacation until the new year. Well, I'm sitting on this audio. We're gonna get to the modern day Minuteman. But until we do, I thought, you know what? For Christmas holiday, let's listen to a Manteca hero. That podcast will feature him and his stories. And this was actually the audio that we were going to use to seed the show. From school to recruitment into the Marines, off to service country. A lot of people do that, right? Okay. Now, include just people who've protected the president. Sure. Some people have done that too, right? Okay. And then off to war. The number's starting to shrink. Serve your time in the military, come home, take up bull riding and rodeoing. But decide that there's probably something more out there. So fly helicopters at war, your number is really shrinking. Serve your country, come home, National Guard, start working for the local police department in one of California's most beautiful but dangerous cities, and still live just a few miles from where you grew up which is what this guy does today. They brought an entire helicopter program to a city that didn't have one based around him, the only guy that knows how to fly the darn thing. That podcast is coming to tell his story, but today we're going to tell the story of my pal, known by his Shadow 10 call sign in the military world. In the Stockton Police Department, he is known as Falcon 10. That's his call sign. He's done SWAT. I mean, we can't even get into it. It's a little bit of an extended version of a podcast, but this audio was meant for something else. But I think Manteca needs to know about their local guy done good. And his name is Daniel Lowry. Daniel, you're a big man, lawman, hard-ass cop, host, best not mess around with Port City. C-O-P, this week I'm talking to Dan Lowry on the Man About Town Podcast. Bandica Podcast. This week we're talking to a hero man, yes, a military man who uses them sticks to fly around town, catches these clowns, then Falcon goes just land on the ground. Daniel Lowry's on the podcast. Magic 
That's your song right there, huh? That one? You like that version I did? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, that was pretty good. You are a liar. Yes, I am. Identify yourself for everybody. Tell everybody who you are. I'm Dan Lowry. I uh, born and raised in Manteca, California, and graduated from Manteca High in 1989. And uh, I'm currently a police officer uh, for Stockton PD, and uh, fly the helicopter there for uh, uh, for the city uh, Falcon One Zero. What year with an eight in front of it or a seven in front of it did you start dreaming about uh, being somebody who wants to fly? Because we're here at your uh, farm in uh, French Camp, California, and we're out in your uh, your cove, your man cave. What's it, you got a name for it? What is it? What is this place to you? What's its name? It's just uh, it's my shop, and it's where I like to be. It's my probably favorite place in the world. I just like to be here. And it, I wasn't going to ask you about flying. Basically, I was going to start with, hey, how'd you get into the military? And hey, how'd you get into law enforcement? All those great things. But as I come in here, I see you have all these models around of these really uh, cool helicopters. And I imagine this all started at a younger age than what I thought. So when did you, because we're going to talk about uh, you going to the military from Manteca, California. We're going to talk about you uh, ended up on the door of a George Bush protecting. And how did you, because you're a, you're a pilot now with the Stockton Police Department. Where did the love for flying come from? I didn't realize it was such a big thing to you outside of your job or maybe from, or I thought maybe it came from being in the military and obviously not. I misjudged that. Yeah. When I was young, I was always fascinated by anything that flew and I liked military aircraft, airplanes, helicopters, but the helicopter kind of always got my attention more than anything else. I was just fascinated by it. And then growing up watching um, the Hueys, the UH-1s flying in Vietnam and coming in and dropping troops off and picking troops up. Um, it's a majestic aircraft with a specific sound to it, and um, I just fell in love with it. And watching those helicopters flying on TV made me realize that's what I wanted to do. And so who in the hell had the TV channel on where we were watching drop-offs of Hueys on TV? Is Dad a major force in all this? And uh, uh, you lost both of your parents. I didn't want to uh, get to your parents just yet, but uh, did Dad have a large influence in that? Or there was obviously some uh, him opening those doors to you in the house to that type of stuff. I never seen uh, Huey dropping off. And it, it was, wasn't playing in my house. My house, my mom was watching Willie Nelson on TV sing, right? <laughs> I'm listening to the radio and you see exactly what I became a country DJ. So what was it like growing up in the, in the household? And tell me about your parents right off the get here, but, and your mom's name, mom's name, Shirley. Um, dad's name is Dan or Daniel as well. Um, amazing people, uh, the kind of people you're happy and proud to bring people home to meet. And uh, oh, I'm scared to go over there. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about your sister being a Raiderette yeah. and uh, all the boys that probably came around looking for sister and dad scaring the bejesus out of them. Yeah. He scared me. He was legit. Okay. He was a, he was a third degree black belt. Um, right. And uh, he, he was um, he was a tough tough guy. Military guy? No, he never. He always he wanted to go in the military, but he had too many kids, um, and they wouldn't let him. And um, so but he was still always um, very much into the military. He appreciated it and respected it, and uh, so he liked watching things about the military. And that's when I would see these. These, these videos of these Hueys and stuff. You'd be sitting out at Golden West and you'd hear the coming in your heartbeat or? Yeah, I, I, just, I was just fascinated with them. So I, I, if I'd hear it, I'd have to 
stop what I was doing to see it. You still do that? I do constantly. Yes. Yes. But just to identify, you want to see who's, you probably know somebody up there. I do want to see who it is, but I'm also <laughs> still, even after flying all these years, um, any time that I'm at the, at the, the army flight facility and an aircraft's taken off or landing or just hovering, I stop what I'm doing and just stare at it. Cause it, it's just, it still just amazes me. What does Dan Lowry think about as he's headed towards graduation? Um, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, where I want to go. I had some ideas of what I wanted. I knew that, uh, you know, I was going places, but college ain't one of them. So it just wasn't in the, in the cards for me. And um, I was kind of done with school at the time anyway. And um, so then I started looking at the Army and... Um, I remember there was a recruiter across the street from the high school and I'd go over there and talk to him and uh, tell him I wanted to fly and I wanted to fly Huey's in the army. And Oh yeah. On the corner there. Yeah. On the corner across from the grand auto. That's right. right? Yeah. What was his name? I don't remember. Really? Yeah. I don't remember. But um, all I remember is talking to him about this and him trying to steer me into a different career field. Not uh really wanting me to do what I was wanting to do. I was wanting to fly and he's trying to get me to do something else. And I feel like he was kind of um, trying to scare me into doing something else because they have certain needs, of course. And so they're going to get more points by getting you into a a certain career. Right. So I was kind of getting discouraged there. Um, And then I started getting calls from the Marine Corps recruiter and this guy was very persistent. Kept trying to get me to come down there. I didn't want to. I said, no, I'm going to go fly Huey's in the army. And uh, he's like, well, I'll take you to lunch. There's no obligation. And I thought, well, free lunch. I wasn't making that much money, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that. I, I, got, I got down to that Marine Corps recruiter's office. He sat me down in front of this TV and, and, and uh, showed me this video of these, these Marines jumping out of the back of uh, Amtrak, which is this uh, tracked amphibious vehicle, running up the beach and shooting stuff. And, man, I was like, That's, those guys are awesome. I want to be one of those guys. And um, next thing you know, I was... I was off to the to the Marine Corps, and um, yeah, I never got that free lunch. But um, where were you going to take him? Where was he going? I don't know. I, I, we never got. If to it that. was your choice back then, where would you have taken him for free lunch in Manteca for all of our uh, locals? Oh, back then, Taco Bell probably. <laughs> Not Zippies. <laughs> no. Not Zippies. <laughs> Zippies was where the long hairs all hung out back in the day. You could smoke across the street at Zippies. Oh. We're supposed to, but you could. Or right there by the drugstore. Yeah, you get over there and get a breakfast early. You land in basic wear. Uh, so I went off to uh, MCRD San Diego. There I am in boot camp. Never really been away from home before. So it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, and it was tough, but I needed that. Uh, you know, I needed to be toughened up a little bit. And um, Why? Well, I just... What do you mean? I just don't think, uh, you know, that I was really that tough back then. And I, you know, I, I needed that. I needed that structure and I needed that... Everything that the Marine Corps provides, which I absolutely still to this day love. Name some of those things. Count off a few of those things on one hand. The pride they take in their tradition and, and their history. Absolutely love that. Um, I love the, uh, the way they instill motivation, um, self-motivation, attention to detail, um, you know, how to carry yourself, and be squared away. And um, I just, uh, I, I liked all that stuff that it instills in you. And um, it kind of sets you up for success for later on. So that was excellent. What do you remember the hardest thing about basic when you got there being? Um, I think overwhelming, being overwhelmed with um, 
so much um, yelling. Do they still do all? Is that still all going on the same? Is that lightened in the in the in the in the latter years of all this? Oh, we better be a little bit nice. I think everything's getting kinder and gentler. I'm afraid, but um, what you went through might be over the line. Yeah, well, and yeah. it's not even anything but loud yelling. Yeah, no, they would. You know, and, yeah. Um, yeah, they would, you know, people get their feelings hurt now. So, uh, <laughs> That's uh, crazy. but, uh, no, it was good. You think people would know what they were signing up for if that was the case? Absolutely. I mean, I think everything you saw about the military, there's always somebody yelling at you, boy, get in it. You know, you saw fall in line, you know, that's the real thing, right? Yeah, it yeah. is. No, um, scare the shit out of you. Uh, it was, uh, it was intense. Um, it can be frightening, you know, in the beginning cause you just, you're not sure what to expect. And you're a long ways from home, you know, very close to my parents. And uh, so it was hard being away from them. Did you leave a girlfriend behind? No, no, no. If there was a girlfriend here, would you have ended up in the military? Um, yeah, 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 I think I would have still. Yeah, because, uh, you know, that's a, that shortcuts a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people, uh, you know, get cut short of moving forward because, uh, you know, a, a girl gets in the mix. And, but you realized dreams prior to that. And it sounds like you were, you were set on hitting up with that recruiter there and taking his, adva- taking his advice. And Yeah. You know, I had um, things that I, I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that this was going to really kind of get me jump started and headed in the right direction. And um, the thing is, is I, again, even with the Marine Corps recruiter, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how that worked. And, and he kind of talked me into going in as a 0311, which is just a basic rifleman. So I'm in boot camp and they have this thing called special screening. I have no idea what it is, but they take a group of us and they put us in this room and give us this weird test. And then the next week I'd be in the squad bay. What? It's a written test. Oh, okay. And um, so then some kind of a speed quiz. It was really, it was, I just, I don't remember what it was exactly about, but I just remember it being really strange. And um, every time I took it, I thought, man, I blew, I blew that one. And the next week I'd be in the squad bay and my name would be on the, on the board to go back to the neck to another round of the special screening. And the group kept getting smaller and smaller until there was only a handful of us. And they put us in a room and they offered us some jobs. And uh, one of them was uh, presidential support. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded really cool. Thinking that I wasn't doing very well, and somehow I managed to, to get through them to the final round and got offered this job. And, and so I took that. So presidential support is a few things. The main job is to go to Camp David and protect the president at Camp David at the presidential retreat. But you start out, you have to, you, I still have to go to my rifleman's course because every... You know, I still have to do the, the original job that I did and go to that school. So I went to School of Infantry there in um, Camp Pendleton, uh, San Onofre. And I went to, uh, uh, so I went to that. How do you say that? I've driven by it a million times. San Onofre? San Onofre. Okay. Yeah. It's just like a, it's O-N-O-R-F-E? Uh, sure. <laughs> so then um, after I finished School of Infantry, then I shipped off to Virginia. There I was to attend um, security force school, which is uh, the security forces are uh, like the, the Marines that guard um, sub tenders or um, embassies. Um, so you got to go to a special school for that. I think it's a four-week school. So I went to that, and it's kind of like teaching you how to be a security guard in a way. Um, and then, uh, so from there... But we, not. Yeah, but not. <laughs> we finished that. I went to Marine Barracks 8th and I in Washington, D.C., uh, the oldest post in the Marine Corps. 
So then, where is it? Where's it located? It's literally on Eighth and I Street in downtown DC. It's like, no, that's not just the mailing no, address. That's the spot. That is it. No, that's not a clever name. No, this is. Uh, it's an amazing place to get to to get to go to because it's downtown DC and it's literally a city block. Is this Marine Corps post right in the middle of town? And the commandant lives there. They, the parade field is in the center, and uh, it's really old. It's a beautiful place, and uh, the Marine. Core silent drill team is there. Uh, the world famous body bearers that you see in any funerals and stuff. And also the Marine that is always at the door of the Pentagon and also at the, on the South lawn of the white house that, that holds the door open when people come in and out, they come from Marine barracks eight and I also. And then you have the Washington Navy yard, which is just a few blocks away. And we have a post there. So when you get to Marine barracks eight and I, our job is to guard the post. So we have different places that, you know, you'll pull guard duty. And so you spend your time there until you get your top secret clearance. Once that top secret clearance comes in and uh, you do what you're supposed to do, then you go off to Camp David and you'll spend normally a year there. Do it When you go to Camp David, is it like a boot camp type of thing? Are you out jogging every day and, and doing the same things that you would do? Or no, you're just there, it's, it's classrooms and, and what? Or is it, is it shooting? Is it, what is it, is it training or is it cerebral? No, this is, uh, you're, you're going to work now. This is your job. Right. So the training's done. Um, you get issued a weapon and you go stand post. Uh, okay. Depending on which post it is. While I was there, that's when the the Gulf War started to spool up. They wanted to send a contingency of Marines from the barracks. They asked for people that wanted to uh, volunteer. And then, you know, if they didn't get enough people, they were going to select people. And I volunteered immediately because, you know, I thought... Like a draft. There's people there going, oh, I'm not going to war. Yeah, I just knew. I mean, this is this hasn't happened in a long time. We hadn't seen a war. What are they telling you it's about? Kuwait had been um, invaded by uh, the Iraqis. They were, they were in a bad way and they had no way to protect themselves. Obviously, a, a very vital um, key part of the world was very important. Because people are like, well, it's all about oil. Well, you know, it kind of is because everything we have runs on it. So we need that stuff and uh, we need to make sure we have access to it. So, yeah, it is important. They said they needed a weapons platoon. Uh, they were going to put together a weapons platoon and send us off and we were going to be attached to the 2nd Marine Division, go do whatever they need us to do. So when we had different weapons, we had mortars. and There's a lot of people at Camp David. Why you? I immediately put in for it. Okay. And I told my parents, I, I never told them the truth. Um, I didn't want to hurt. What would you tell them? I told them that I had to do it, that I was selected and was told and to do it. the truth was you volunteered I to volunteered go. to go. Wow. You think that would have made a difference if you told them? Well... They went through a lot, uh, sending their son off to war and, sure. and and knowing that maybe they didn't have to go through that. If I hadn't volunteered, then uh, you just I just didn't want to. So, okay. So, you tell them you want to go. You go. I was made uh, an M60 machine gunner, a cruiser weapon. It's myself. I'm the gunner, and I have an A gunner, and he's the one that uh, he carries my spare barrel and barrel bag and... Um, also helps with the ammo and the, the tripod, which is what the gun mounts on. You shoot the gun from the from the tripod. And um, so we go and start training. Because I was a rifleman, I wasn't a machine gunner. So we had to go and train and get uh, proficient with the gun 
And uh, it was a squad of machine guns. It became time to go. Start getting fascinated at that point with the artillery and the and the weapons associated with the job. You're I, all, you're sort of you're sort of signing signing to the to the job now. I can see it. Yeah, and, uh, I was digging a machine gun. As I look over here at your uh, at the Humvee here yeah. with uh, what is that on top of it? M one thirty four minigun. That's your first machine gun. Did your dad yeah. have a machine gun? No, that okay. was the first. All right. and, uh, yeah, my dad had my hand. He did, my dad had his hands. <laughs> he didn't need a machine gun. Well, it definitely. Uh, I took to it and I, and I liked it. Um, and then we ended up in uh, Cherry Point, North Carolina, um, getting ready to uh, get on an airplane and fly overseas. And honestly, I don't even at this point know where Kuwait is. I just know it's like uh, some other part of the planet, <laughs> far away. So they put us on a plane and we flew hours and hours on end. And we landed in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And... Uh, there we you know gathered all our equipment and made our final preps and things and um to get ready and then um they put us on trucks and started moving us north and the trucks would stop and we'd get out and dig fighting holes two to a hole and pretty large uh fighting hole you know it's like a horseshoe shaped and the machine gun sits in the middle and then um when we'd have to move north again we'd have to empty our sandbags fill the holes back up and take the sandbags with us and we'd move north and we'd get set up again and then dig dig your hole again and uh, this just happened over and over and over as we kept moving north and um then the uh the air campaign began and uh so so as you're going along and your hole you're getting in there in case anybody starts coming your way or yeah okay so you don't see nothing yet right now you guys are just in headed headed yeah daylight dark daylight um well daylight and dark you know it's so you, so you go a certain amount you get your shovel out you dig a hole yeah. you put all the sand in a bag when you leave you put the sand you dip the sand out and take your sandbags with you. how long does it take for you to move across to the desert digging holes it depended because sometimes we would uh we would travel all day just ride in the back of those big deuce and a half or five tons and uh then it would stop and we'd get out and dig and, you know, get the hole dug before it got dark. And it's going to be deep, you know, because if we start taking indirect fire, um, you need something to be able to provide you with some type of protection because there's no cover out there. Obviously, it's just open desert. So did you practice that or no? They just go, OK, run, dig a hole, get in it. We trained uh, okay. on how we were going to do that. OK, and, um, got it. And then, you know things change you kind of fluid you know and you have to kind of just go with it but sure and how much area where are you are you talking was it 100 miles 300 miles thousand miles what is it do you know we, it was hundreds of miles, hundreds I, don't, of I, miles. Don't, I don't know you know each time that we had moved because i had no idea and from like, the day you landed in riyadh took you how long to get to when they started the airstrike it, it wasn't long i don't think we were there um out in the field meaning we you know we love riyadh and actually we're outdoors now we don't we don't go there's no buildings you're just outside you sleep in that hole and um but someone's got to be awake all night so you're doing you're you're working in shifts one guy's awake sitting on the gun the other one's sleeping all night long and um then uh then the ground war starts i don't think it was but uh three weeks or so before they started the, the air war you know we didn't know what to bring we didn't have i didn't have uh, like a jacket no cold weather gear we thought we're going to the desert it's gonna be hot well it was cold at night it was cold at, and it's in the winter time this is january oh my, my goodness and so it would rain for days on end we got no rain gear um we only have one set of desert camos that they just issued us just as we got there and um so you don't have a change of clothes but it was pretty miserable it was it was some hard times 
um, just with the weather alone and not really having anything, no, no way to, if you're cold, you're just cold. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no way to warm up. So um, it just, it is what it is. The, the air wars is now going now. And uh, so it's a constant, um, you can hear the bombs going off in the distance and uh, you can hear the aircraft flying overhead, but it's, it's far off in the distance. So we keep moving north until um, there's one night where they, they kept pushing us north, kept pushing us north. And then unbeknownst to us, we ended up being one of the farthest units north. And we were uh, an advance party for the rest of my company. So it was just a platoon of us. As the advance party, there we are. We dig in, we dig our fighting holes. And that evening, I remember those bombs that we were hearing in the distance were getting, they're getting closer and closer. thought that was kind of strange. And then as it got into the night, it started to get really close. I remember my squad leader coming up out of the darkness, walking up to the fighting hole. And he told me, or he told both of us, he said, look, um, if I come back here and I tell you to, I'm going to need you to grab everything that you can carry and you're going to come with me. And uh, then he walked off into the darkness. And I was like, okay, that's not good. But uh, we have no idea what's going on. But I can hear these bombs getting closer and closer. Sure enough, a little while Later, he comes back and says, grab everything you can. Let's go. So are you inhaling? Are you inhaling sand and, and balls ready? Or are you scared now? This is what we're doing. And we're Marines. And woo! Uh, it's just time to do a big lip with a lip full of. Hmm. You know, OK, you, you know, I, I just was uh, it was just kind of matter of fact. It's just it's time to do work. And this is this is what we do. I have no idea what's going on. I know it's bad, but, you know, it's just uh, it's time to go. So I grab the 60 with the tripod connected to it. I throw it over my shoulder. I grab as much ammo as I could. And that was pretty much everything that I could carry. My, my egg gunners got more ammo and he's got the spare barrel. So off we go and we go into what they call the Saudi berms that they had um, dug. They're huge. They're massive. What, what, are you, what, are you, what are you talking about? I would say they're... Like in this uh, room we're in? Yeah, they're 10, 15 feet tall. And there's two of them, you know, the little gap in between them. Just keep tanks and things to be able to, from being able to just go through there. They tell us to get down in these berms. So we get in between those two berms and we get down in them. And now the bombs are like almost on top of us now. So what we didn't know that we found out later was the Iraqis, they had their position set up and they had uh, landmines set up behind them. So they, they couldn't retreat from where they were um, and they were getting hammered by our air campaign they're running out of food and supplies and so they can't retreat and the only thing they can do is to go forward and so they decide to go forward and take this town called Kofji and we just happen to be between them and that town and not knowing it until the middle of the night when that was I think it was close to a battalion of light armor and infantry kind of rolled around on top of us and then there we were now in these berms and we're outnumbered things start going sideways you know and uh, then things start getting real. Now, now I'm starting to get concerned and um, starting to feel like this uh, impending doom. Like, I know there's no way I'm getting out of this one. You know, there's no way I figured I just lived my 18 years of my life to die in this place. And that's what's going to happen tonight. But I'm going to fight until, you know, as long as I can. But I'm pretty sure this is it. And um, I wasn't like upset or praying to save me or anything like that. I just accepted it. I just knew that that's, I was unhappy that I wouldn't um, go home again. So this battle goes on all night. Um, they called in Task Force Ripper, which is uh, these uh, LAVs, these light armored vehicles and with tow missiles on them. And you started seeing tow missiles being launched and flying 
you know, in, at, at night. I mean, they're bright. And um, I remember seeing those rockets flying. Then they brought in the A-10 Warthog, and you could hear that that big gun on that thing. You know, it's very distinctive, very loud. And um, that was comforting. You know, I knew that they were coming to help us and get us out of there. So that went on all night. Next morning, just, just about daybreak, um, they got in three trucks because the other trucks had left, but they brought us some trucks to get us out of there. And there was a, a wrecker, you know, like a tow truck. There was a fuel truck and then a regular five ton. And uh, we piled on those trucks and there was not really enough room for everybody. So you just kind of got on wherever you could. I remember sitting on the, on the roof of the cab. I could just see you guys packed on. But I, I remember, um, I'd be so scared, man. We were going North in the other trucks. We were passing all these other Marine units. And I remember seeing these Amtraks, those amphibious vehicles I'd seen in those videos when I was with the recruiter that time. And, uh, all these Marines are sleeping on top of it and next to it. And they're kind of waking up and looking at us and watching us as we drive by wondering, you know, who are these guys and where are they going? And then the next day they see us going as fast as we can, the other direction on three more trucks hanging off the sides of the truck. And they're looking at us going back the other way. Now. It was a wild night. And then, you know, we, we went, like, we ended up with uh, combat rations. So we were getting two MREs a day. They were fine. Um, I didn't mind eating them. I just wanted more Two a, two a day. Wasn't cutting it. And it got to where you were just always hungry. Yeah, it looks like you finally found the food. Yeah, I did. But it was miserable just uh, always being hungry all the time. Yeah, it was some tough days during that. that Do you see any death in these days? Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of destruction. I mean, war is violent, and um, there's no way you're not going to see that, you know. And they told us when you we... You must have got a charge off it because you'd stayed with it and have been doing it your whole life. You know, I don't know that I get a charge off it. I just, um, I, it's just, it's this is my job. And this is what I got to do, you know? And um, so you just... You're coming up on 50. This is when you were 19. Yeah. You've cut your whole life down doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. a certain type of person. I think it was, you know, it was what I was meant to do. <laughs> I just would have never thought that. Who'd have, who'd have turned out to be the beast of a man you are now? I don't know if it sounds silly, but I always felt like um, I was meant to, to for people or protect people that won't or can't protect themselves. After that battle, you know, we went on and did other things and lots of destruction. Um, um, I remember seeing tanks, uh, the Iraqi tanks blown up and uh, burning. I've never seen tanks burn before, but they burned. Um, I was just telling you before we started about my house is lath and plaster yeah. and electrical fire might not burn it, but you've seen steel. Yeah. You've seen steel burn. Yeah, the tanks. Yeah. I, I never thought. <laughs> see, I'm not very smart. You oh, see. <laughs> not good. I. I <laughs> I had seen a, a Russian T-72 uh, with the turret completely blown off the tank and the main gun stuck in the sand with, uh, you know, the turret sticking up in the air. It was unbelievable, some of the stuff that you see there. Um, the massive weight, the, yeah. mang- the weight of the yeah. the gravity and the weight of everything yeah. and the mangled and the, like, you can see it. I, I only get to see it from movies, but the movies got to be half true, yeah. I think. The movies yeah. ever hit it on the head? Um, no. No, <laughs> always not. No. Zero, right? Yeah. There's no glamorous part of it, right? No. Right. No, not at all. Right. It was, uh, that was, uh, that was some rough times. Something you've never told anybody about the Battle of Kofji. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I don't really talk about it a whole lot. And honestly, I don't think about it much, you know, cause it's been, it's like a lifetime ago. I mean, I know I was there and I know I did it, but it's not, there's really not any good memories from it other than that's more than fair hero. You know, uh, other than 
what we were doing, I, I fully believed in. And I felt like we were doing something good for someone, you know, for those people. That was the respectful way of saying, none of you beeswax what went on over there. <laughs> Civilian. You came back from the war of Kofji, the Battle of Kofji. You returned to D.C. Yeah. And then you are assigned for a year to guard. Yeah, so uh, to go to Camp David. So I get back from, from the deployment and um, my security clearance is in. I got my top secret clearance and uh, I'm all set. So I moved um, to Camp David. Um, just an amazing, amazing experience and, and an amazing opportunity to get to do that. Um, obviously, very few people get to do that. Fill in the blank. The president you're now protecting. Yes. Um, so I'm with uh, George Herbert Walker Bush and uh, Barbara Bush. Um, the Quails were the vice president um, at the time, and um, and they and they spent uh, they spent quite a bit of time there. Um, we would guard the installation, whether they're there or not, because obviously, if it's compromised, even when they're not there, then it pretty much ruins the whole point of Camp David. So, uh, it's a very secret place. Um, Can you fly over it? No. How far away is the clearance? Um, I forget what the TFR was of how, uh, what the actual distance was, but we would happen sometimes. And uh, uh, we had a phone that we would call Leesburg and they would track, um, track the airplane to where it landed and they'd send Secret Service out there to go uh, have a talk with the person. Tell me something funny that only you and the guys know about. Is there a certain candy machine, uh, something always ripping off your $1 or something, 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 for, give me a funny about um, being there. Well, um, I, they had, uh, they had a... Because not too many people get to go to Camp David, A, yeah. or get to protect the president. Yeah. And you're doing both now after going to the Battle of Kofji. And now are you 19 or 20? I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm 20 now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I'm, uh, you've lived a lifetime now. You've lived a lifetime. You're protecting a president. And we're not even scratching the surface of this podcast. Yeah, you, know, you, uh, you, would, you would have usually two shifts that you would, um, you know, for your day, you would pull guard duty, so there'd be a gap in between. You'd usually sleep. Um, but if the president wanted to shoot trap, if he wanted to hit baseballs, you would go shag balls for him, or you would go keep score on the trap machine. And I remember getting woke up to have to go do stuff, and I get mad, you know, because I'm, I have to like not, what? I have to not sleep um, to go uh, to go shag balls for uh, for the president. Middle maybe. of the night? No, no, it's oh, during the day. Oh, just times that you're resting because is, you guys are working. Exactly. Okay, because you work uh, you cutting work, into your. Okay, okay. You yeah. work a shift during the day, and then I got it. I got it. And uh, and then I, you know, would sometimes it would hit me. It's like I'm griping about having to go hang out with the president of the United States. Right I'm now. so cool yeah. that this is so, t- yeah, that's the job. That's just like going to the fight hole with the machine gun. It's yeah. the job. Yeah, it, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it, it was pretty awesome because you get to see him in a, in a relaxed uh, environment um, where he gets to kind of let his hair down a little bit, so to speak. Was yeah. he cool? He was very cool. He was the, that was uh, junior around was W around in, in those days. Was uh, he? Yeah. We'd see him and Jeb sometimes. Nice uh, guy. No. Uh, yeah, they were all good. The, the whole family. Business treated, people? Yeah, but they treated us like family. They really did. Barbara Bush was an amazing, amazing person. Um, and, and so the president uh, and, and the staff and everybody all have um, uh, a code name that they get. And uh, so George Bush, George Bush was, uh, was Timberwolf and uh, Barbara Bush was Tranquility, which was uh, it's very fitting. It's sweet. Yeah. No, it was... Uh, yeah, they they seem like that's yeah. what they seem like. Yeah. Those are those names are it's very fitting and yeah. and yeah, just super amazing people. Um, and the president, like I say, he treats you like family and just talk to you regular, just like a regular person would. And uh, it was pretty amazing. 
And then there was a night where um, I, it was when you first get there, you got to pull some um, duty in the chow hall. You got to work 30 days there in the chow hall. Long days, hard work, and um, but you got to, you know, take your turn. So they were wanting to close the chow hall that night after, after uh, evening chow, and they wanted to make sure everybody had eaten. So they asked me to go find the sergeant of the guard and make sure everybody had eaten. And uh, so I go. He said they're they're in the fa- he's in the fats room, and the fats room is a like a like a simulated. Uh, combat. It's an acronym for something. FATS. Yeah, what is it? It's a combat simulator. You know, and they got guns um, in a movie screen. It's not a room with me sitting in it. No, it's not that kind of fats room. <laughs> <No>. Different. <laughs> and the and so the and, the and the guns actually recoil and do all this stuff. You know, and so um, I was going to the fats room to. Uh, talk to the sergeant of the guard. And as I'm walking down the hallway, I see um, Secret Service guy standing outside. And I thought that was kind of strange. And he's just watching me as I'm walking up to him. And he asked me if he can help me. I said, I'm looking for the sergeant of the guard. And he's like, oh, he's inside. And the whole time I'm walking down the hallway, I hear this yelling and screaming. This loud screaming. It's, it's Bush. It is unbelievable. I couldn't it's the president. I walk in and it's him. <laughs> it's the president. Shooting on that fast machine, just screaming and going to town. He's having a ball. On Former it. military. He's a pilot and stuff, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah. yeah so no, he was legit. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was uh, pretty, pretty amazing. And then on top of that, uh, he would always have amazing guests come and spend the weekend up there. And we would get to see them like uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. When they were together, they came. They would uh, put out on this uh, certain channel, wherever the, the president was, they would echo his movements. So people always knew where he was. I had heard that he was at Y Oak, which is the, uh, the gym. And uh, so I wanted to go and see Bruce Willis. Is it still Y Oak or do they change the names? Uh, normally they stayed the same, but I, they could have changed it. I just don't imagine they would. I hear that he's at the gym and I figure Bruce Willis is probably there too. So I go to the gym because I just want to accidentally run into him. So I'm going to go work out. And, uh, Anybody seen the weight room? <laughs> you looking for the weight room. Uh, yep, you're going to yeah. fashion upon these guys. Yeah, so I, go, I get into the gym and it's empty. There's nobody there, but I know they said he was here and I can't find him. So I'm looking all around. There's nobody anywhere. And so I go towards the racquetball court as i'm getting close to it to look in to see if they're in there the door bursts open and it's the president and he's saying no he's got to go he said and he looks at me and he's like you you can you can replace me and i'm just kind of dumbfounded i'm just like oh yeah he comes out he's left somebody in there and you got to go fill in yeah now i'm thrilled you know and, and the president <laughs> just asked me to replace him and uh they have a, a net set up for volleyball sure. inside there absolutely volleyball yeah. is like volleyball but they play with like a large uh, blue racquetball you can use walls and all that yeah and so as i go in there they got other secret service um guys that are in there um some other marines bruce willis is on one team <laughs> and uh mickey rourke is on the team with them no yeah. way and uh and so then i get put on the opposite team and uh so i'm playing opposite of him and uh and he was so cool he was just so much fun grabbing me through the net and, and just messing with us and giving us a hard time just having a ball and it was just so much fun and then i bet he wouldn't grab you now <laughs> yeah i bet he ain't gonna grab you now through the net i don't know um <laughs> 20 but, someone's still grabbing you i can see that i can see mickey Rourke maybe grab. yeah i know he tries to be that you know that guy doesn't even look the same no no I, it looks like somebody really hit him hard with something <laughs> in the face well uh, Demi Moore and her kids but are nice enough they're like up on the um, you know how they have the ledge up above so you can sit and watch sure. and her mom is up there with her and they're watching us as we play so that was so George Bush says I'd really like to invite Demi and, and Bruce over they show up to Camp David spend a few days there yeah Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith 
they were there. Arnold Schwarzenegger was there a lot. Uh, small guy, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, tiny. Uh, is he? Is he? Uh, he's smaller than he appears on TV, right? Can Honestly, you take him? Uh, probably not. He's pretty big. <laughs> can you take him? Uh, he was. Uh, he's, you can take him now. Uh, he's a big dude. <laughs> uh, George Strait. George Strait came up, and uh, now that doesn't surprise me at all. Crazy story. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so George Strait comes, and they have all the the Supreme Court justices and. They, uh, we all go to the church, very small, little tiny church, right? And George Strait sings for us. He's singing all these songs. Uh, what song do you remember him singing? Of all the great George Strait songs, which one pops from that one for you? It ended up being the president's favorite. Love Without End, Amen. Yeah, and so uh, he starts singing that song, um, and someone comes down the aisle and grabs the president, and they walk out. So we continue on. Come to find out, because he comes back you know, a little bit later. He sits back down, and so George is now asking, what you, would you like to hear? Well, the president wants to hear that, because that's his favorite song. So he sang it again for just for him, but he, he sang it a second time, which is cool. I just thought it was cool that he did that. But then come to find out the next day, he had stepped out and had ordered the bombing of Gaddafi's house at that moment. Because do you hear the story that you're telling? <laughs> no, I think you just sort of matter of factly sitting here at your house telling me the story. Do you hear what you're telling me? It was just wild that how that whole thing kind of transpired, and we were all there for it. Was there for the U.S. Russia summit with Boris Yeltsin worked that. And if he had like, like he was going to throw the first ball out at the World Series, he'd have some famous pitcher come up and spend the weekend. He had a, a golf tournament. He had Arnold Palmer come up and, and, and they went, you know, um, putting around and, uh, you know, he'd kind of polish up his game before he goes and does that stuff with, he has access to <laughs> the, the perfect people. It's just funny. <laughs> And what was the favorite food served at camp? It was a regular standard chow hall. It wasn't the worst food. It was decent. It was no Air Force chow, that's for sure. But uh, you guys never stop. You never stop, do you? <laughs> no, I, I, I ended up in a in a in an Air Force Air Force chow hall one time. Coming back from, uh, I think it was coming back from the Gulf War. I walked into this chow hall and I thought I was in a sizzler. You know I mean, <laughs> they didn't even bust their own table. They just left everything here and walked out. I couldn't believe what was happening. I knew at that point I'd made some poor life choices. Oh, you made all the right decisions for the way you were. <laughs> headed it's 1993 and you don't want to be in the military anymore or your time's up well uh so my because you were honorably discharged well my time was up at camp david and i was headed back to the west coast uh, to go back to the uh the uh an infantry unit there to the fleet marine force we had some uh tragedies in the family happen and uh father had had a heart attack and my uncle had got murdered in stockton and um so there was some hard times going and so i i didn't know about that yeah um i had requested an extension for my leave and some emergency leave and so they came back and asked if because i was getting close to the end of my tour um and uh they asked if i was going to re-enlist and i told them no i was going to separate once i got to the end of my time and so they just gave me a um an early out and they let me um just leave since uh i i kind of needed to be home with the family at the time and how much time did you come home for i was done and so I was just there permanently. I think it was uh, just under four years. What do you do, Dan? You got money saved? What do you come home? You got money in the bank? You're, everything's great? No. And you're, no? No, I didn't have, uh, I didn't Nothing have, like that yet. No, I didn't have much, uh, much saved just because I didn't make that much, you know? And right. I was always flying from the East Coast, from D.C. I was flying to, uh, oh. to California to come home all the time. So, but I started, you know, applying for jobs immediately and, I got uh, I got hired as a department manager for uh, Orchard Supply, so I started doing that. And you started 
amateur bull riding. I did. I did. So I remember this. I remember you riding bulls. Well, you know, and that's uh, why I call you a cowboy to this day. You're a cowboy because of all the things you've done. But I never thought I would. I would do something like that. I always liked rodeo. What's your size? You, now we we I talked a little bit about you being a short guy. Are you starting to get of size now at in at this age yeah. riding bulls? Are you starting to feel? Yeah, I'm about five eleven. You put on a lot of. Did you put on the? Were you waiting at that point? No, no the was, weights came in yeah. with the law enforcement. Or? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't that big, um, and you don't want to be. Obviously, right. yeah, right. And I was probably taller than I should have been for a bull rider. When I was getting out, the uh, commander of the Fourth LSB, where I was working out of, to the Fourth Landing Support Battalion, the the commander was a college champion, and uh, he was very proud of it. Obviously, and wanted to uh, show me all his pictures and stuff. And I was oh, I was just eating it up. I was thinking this is the coolest thing ever. And so he liked that even more. So he started showing me, you know, how to do it and what to do. And so then I was starting to really get into this. I was starting to think, this is really neat. Um, I want to do this. And so I found a place that I could go and, and pay some money and get on a bull. And uh, it was in Morgan Hill. And uh, uh, my commander had uh, given me a bull rope and um, I found some spurs. and I got, you know, the basic equipment that I needed. <laughs> I figured, you know, I'm going to get on one. I'm just starting in cat country at this point. Yeah. This is the day. This is the heyday of cat country. Yes, you know? it is. These years or yes right when i'm starting out to be who i've become you know sure. you've done all this stuff <laughs> you know i'm still here in my house i talk for a living <laughs> listen to the microphone so i would see you country i'd see you at the club we'd you yeah. know come out to the brandon iron yeah. or cactus jack so you're on the prowl huh you're on the prowl <laughs> but the whole thing was i'm gonna go and i'm gonna get on one and um if i don't like it at least i can say i did it and if i do like it maybe it's something that i'm meant to do and uh, i got on this bull and i'm sure it looked pretty hilarious you know but um because i didn't know don't really. be so sure well i didn't know how you know exactly what i was doing just what i was told and uh my first time and i covered the bull you know and he wasn't a super ranked bull or nothing but i mean like i wrote him and and i loved the feeling i was it was unbelievable i felt like i just you know cheated death and uh i couldn't sleep you know that night because it was so exciting and i was like this is it this is what i'm supposed to do and so every wednesday i would drive back to morgan hill and i would go get on another bull and i would get on as many as i could and practice and then uh then i started going to bull ridings and trying to win and, uh, and you went pro. Yeah, before I went pro, I eventually won uh, the um, the championship there in Morgan Hill in 1996. And then uh, I went amateur and started riding the CCPRA. And then uh, after a year of that, I went professional and went into the PRCA and started riding um, there at rodeos all over the state, just in the state of California, and then also the bull riders only. And the Grand Nationals? Yeah, they rode the Grand Nationals in the Cow Palace, San Francisco, two years in a row. Um, Hayward, Rowell Ranch, Livermore. Livermore made some money there. What kind of money did he win for sitting on the back of a bull and not getting tossed off after I, eight seconds? I believe it was, uh, I, I got some day money that day, and I, I won about 400 $420, I think. And I mean, that was a big deal for me. You Didn't know. get no bones broke, no teeth knocked out, nothing. Eight seconds of work. And I, they, 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 they cut me a check. I couldn't believe it. You're going to pay me to do this. And then I walked out. And, uh, oh, and the ladies love rodeo. They, you know, the guys they, in rodeo. They, they love the cowboys. It was like being a cowboy rock star. It was, yeah. uh, it was pretty amazing. And yeah. I absolutely just uh, had a ball. And uh, I mean, there was, there was tough times though. I mean, I, I broke my collarbone. I got knocked out like, Scatter your chickens, go to sleep, and not know who you are for a while. Smelling salts? Um, no, never had those. You just you just wake up. You just wake up eventually. The clowns on top of you going, hey, get up. <laughs> and, uh, well, yeah, you know, you and then um, I think Chowchilla uh, or King City, I was up down there in a, just like a bull riders only. And uh, I got... I, I got tore up pretty good. I, I covered my bull and made my ride. I took third place, um, but I got sent to the hospital that night um, in an ambulance. And uh, I remember being on the, uh, 
uh, on the examination table there in the ER and, <laughs> and the nurse came out and the doctor came in and I told him, I said, look, I don't have medical insurance, so I can't, I can't do this. I, I got to go. And they uh, made me sign a release form. Doctor got mad. Yeah, advising you not to go. Oh, he, I he, had that happen one time. He's like, fine, just go die. They get in. pissed, don't they? Oh, he was They mad. don't like that. No. Oh, no. I was like, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, but um, I can't pay for this and I'm not going to pay all my winnings that I just went through all this to, to get just got uh, beers to get there's, there's yeah. got a few tall ones. I'm going to have to score afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Ladies yeah. today, dinners to buy. No, we t- I had a, uh, my leg was tore open from my knee down to my ankle. My side was split open where I got stepped on. And, uh, you know, you had a Bud Light and you got in the car and you moved down the road to the next one. But it got to the point where I was realizing that I had things that I wanted. I wanted to have some things, and I knew that if I, if I wanted to have no money in that, yeah, if I wanted to have those things, I was going to have to get a real job. So it became time to 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 move on. Your sister told me about. It. I she sent me a few things, but I, I can't find my phone right now. I was going to hit you about one, but tell me tell me about the time you were down with your sister when she was living in uh, what was that? Now? You said King City. It's not King City. Oh, she was, was in she? Clovis. In, in Clovis, right yeah. past there, somewhere. Yeah. And you guys went to a bar and. Someone thought you were Ty Murray, and you ran with it the whole night. <laughs> well, they, it was just a joke because uh, I was just standing in this bar, and uh, apparently there was a uh, Ty Murray cutout, and I was standing next to it. I didn't even realize it. And these people thought that it was me, that that, that I was him. And uh, so all of her friends were just kept kept this going on and on and on, right? And, and so this girl, she really thought it was cool. She liked she liked me because she thought I was him. We go to the rodeo the next day. And then next thing you know, Ty Murray's actually up. <laughs> He's riding, and I'm still standing there. So the gig was up at that point. She got mad. <laughs> Some funny stuff. Man, I used to come around your house to uh, see your sister, one of her friends. Hello, my name is Tina Lari Lette. I am a Catholic pre-K religion teacher in Meridian, Idaho. I am Daniel Lowry's older sister. And a lot of times I feel like I am his younger sister, mainly because of his life experiences. We grew up in a very humble home. We lived in a two-bedroom house off of Lathrop Road. Daniel was born in the Manteca Doctors Hospital and eventually moved in next door at a bigger home that had an attic, which it sounds kind of creepy, but actually it was a lot of fun. Wow. It it was pretty cool. In high school, she was always uh, very popular. Everybody liked Tina. And uh, once you meet her, you know why, because she's just an amazing person. Um, Yeah, she was a high school cheerleader and uh, became a Raiderette, which is pretty amazing. What was it like having the Raiderettes coming around? Or or did they? Did they make it to Manteca? Yeah, they would come by every once in a while. It uh, it didn't suck. It wasn't bad. What was life like at home, sis? We really had a lot of tough love. And I have to say, dad involved us, our whole family, mom, dad, Daniel and I, and our uncle Matt. We were involved in karate. Our dad um, taught it in our garage for those years as well. He was a black belt and we attended Morse karate, Shang Shu, downtown Antigua. 
and remained staying really, really busy. Mom did her best of taking us to um, activities that were free. That's where our love for football and worked very hard, especially my brother. Rancho Market Grocery Store, I believe that was the name of it. He always tinkered with dad out in the garage or in the back, um, fixing on a, a Bronco or a Ford or... Doing something like that right now, too. What are you over there tinkering on? I'm doing a, uh, a 1979 Trans Am, building a, a bandit car and uh, doing a full uh, restoration on that. And uh, yeah, I got that from, from dad. Always were working on something. He taught me how to, how to fix anything, actually. Cause we, we didn't have that much. And so whenever anything broke, instead of throwing it away, like most people would do now, we would have to fix it because we didn't really have... Uh, the means to to replace it. One thing they made sure of is that that we never did without, that's for sure. Did he make sure you were paying attention or did you just pay attention on your own? I was always fascinated uh, seeing him working on things. And so I always wanted to work on things with him and I wanted to take things apart to see. I was always curious of how things worked. I remember him giving me a carburetor one time and I disassembled that thing as far as you possibly could and never was able to put it back together, but I got to see what was inside it and that's what I wanted. Keep going, Tina. Grandpa Ray and um, Grandma Adele passed down a, a Jeep to us that dad ended up turning into this amazing military Jeep that my brother still has and we just treasure um, all the things that um, dad did and brother helped with along the years. To think about the days that looking back, I would say I probably was the sibling that got into a lot of mischief and trouble. I was the oldest one and I have to say Daniel probably took a lot of brunt, especially him being a freshman in a high school of an older sibling. I think I may have been a junior or senior. I had no ill will of the jokes that I would play or be a part of. Um, I love my brother so much and <laughs> we have always grown up in a household of jokes and um, being the, the butt of them. and. Um, never to be malicious, but always to just get a laugh out of others around. You remember any jokes? I remember my sister. I was really little at the time. She she put me in a closet with a blanket over my head and tied me up. <laughs> and uh, and then went, mom called us for dinner. So she went to dinner and left me in the closet in the dark with the lights out. And I came out, finally made my way out of that and uh, tripped and fell and hit my head on the, on the corner of shelf or something and oh no and then there was another time we were camping at half moon bay and me and her playing on the beach you know we always we fought a lot but we you know she's an amazing sister and uh she's always loved me and always been there for me but there was definitely times when uh she would play tricks on me and so uh i was pretty small at the time here too we're on the beach playing and uh we we're digging a hole and then she put me in the hole and then buried me up to my shoulders and then, uh, so mom calls us for dinner again, you know, they're at the trailer. So she goes running to dinner and leaves me out there. And my mom, she keeps coming back out and screaming at me to come to dinner. And I'm trying to tell her that I can't get out of the hole. She's getting madder and madder because I'm not coming. She thinks, she thinks, she thinks I'm just messing around until they finally realized I couldn't get out and they had to come out and unbury me. He went into bull riding that was tearing at our hearts. 
Um, we were nervous and scared for him and just knew that it was a dangerous sport to be in. He did that for three plus years and even to this day talks about coming out of uh, bull riding retirement and trying it again, which I say hell to the no because we are not our younger selves anymore and can recover from any type of whirly bird falls. And and he had, I, I can't even count how many concussions he had from the falls and the injuries from bull riding. But I tell you that tough guy just kept going and going and we would follow him to um, Gilroy to San Francisco to Las Vegas to Livermore Brentwood just so proud so proud of Daniel just living out his dreams but terrified for um, eight seconds to go by and making sure that he was uh, not injured and trampled by the bull and then Daniel talked about going into the military and when he chose the Marines, mom and dad and I, just our hearts again clenched and thought, oh my, Marines, it's pretty tough, simplify, do or die. It was hard, especially when he was deployed, I believe two to three times and just praying to God that he would be protected and just continue to be brave and have faith that all will work out and he just prevailed we were so proud when he went to camp david and and graduated with honors and guarded um, president bush senior and junior and all the presidents from then i i have kind of lost count of the presidents <laughs> uh daniel has um worked for since um bush senior um he continues to just anything he puts his mind to when he went into becoming a police officer for stockton for daniel to join the stockton pd i i should say join but apply and just go through the testing and the rigorous interviews he just kept going for it and doing it and when he became a police officer not only just a police officer he was a motorcycle officer became a SWAT and now he is still a helicopter pilot up in the sky serving and protecting he's also working for the national guard that he's done for years after the marines i just reflect back and look back that he lives in french camp but always his heart has been with our folks and with us in manteca and although i moved away about 17 years ago he still stayed loyal and faithful and taking care of our folks and just always keeping me informed and would do anything for my family and for our folks and i am so grateful and um appreciative for all that he is and that he has done his loyalty to his farm and his animals and his wife and his family and friends are just far above anyone. I am so proud that he is my brother. And although he talks about retirement, my prayers are that one day his farm, his wife and all come to Idaho where we could be closer and he can retire and 
enjoy having some downtime and relaxation. I know his heart and his soul is where he's at and protecting and serving and honoring his badge is what he has always done. And he truly, truly is one of the icons of Manteca. And I am so proud. I continue to pray that our folks and God and our loved ones up in heaven continue to watch over him and protect him. And for him to know that um, he is appreciated and he is loved. Thanks, Tina. Final thought? And if there's anything that I can share that maybe people don't know about my brother is that ask that exterior, that tough guy, because he has a heart of gold Macho. and he has a sensitivity beyond anything that anyone knows. His nephews, his brother-in-law, and his number one fan, me, all look up to him and love him and just continue to honor him the life that he has worked so hard for. So thank you for this time for me to be able to share with you about my amazing brother, Daniel. Yeah, it's, uh, and yeah, they, she's pretty amazing. A lot of nice things that she said. Of course, she's my sister, so she's got to be nice. Uh, it's like your mom telling you that you look good. She, she's kind of biased. She has to tell you that. But my mom didn't say that to me. <laughs> no, she's uh, she's she's pretty amazing, and I'm uh, grateful to have such a sister like that. It's police officer time for you, and why? Rodeo, and you know you're 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 eating steak one one week, and the next week you're eating pork and beans out of a can. You know, it's like feet. Uh, you know, just. Mm-hmm. Um, those movies are right. Yeah. Rodeo movies are yeah. pretty correct. Yeah. They're, they're pretty right. on. Yeah. There could be some hard times, you know? And then, uh, so it was time to get a real job. And, um, and so I still had that desire to, to serve in the, you know, the police department. And, um, you always think that, you know, you just want to, you want to help people and you want to be there in their time of need and, and, and try to do what's right. And, um, um, you know, and, and, and I was looking for a career, not just a job. And uh, it just seemed to, to fit me again, like everything else that I had done. It just seemed to be what I'm did, wired for. What did mom and dad think of this decision now going to the police academy? They were, because you don't know what city you're going to at this point, do you? Did you I apply did, in Stockton? I applied in Stockton, okay. and uh, they were nervous, but they were very excited well, for now. Me. Knowing there was a killing in your family in Stockton, that have something to do with it. Does that have a little bit to do with it at all? Do you no, know? No, no, no. They just like uh, a therapy session. <laughs> tell me, Dan, you know, tell me, was it because uh, no. Yeah, I just, uh, it's just something that I always thought that I wanted to do. And uh, so I applied and I got selected and went to, uh, went to the police academy and then started working there in Stockton. Um, It was, and that was another culture shock for me because you don't realize the things that happen, you know, until you're actually there doing that job. And then you did open your eyes to a lot of stuff. And, um, clean and vomit out of the back seat from some guy who hurled. It's a, I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of it, isn't it? There's a lot of that. There's bro. a lot of, a lot of things. <laughs> it's it's it, the things that you see there right. in that period of time. Uh, you know, I've been there 24 years. Um, it's amazing. The stuff that you'll see, um, good and bad. I don't think it's narrowed down to the city of Stockton either. No, it's it's every not. city's got that. Oh, I think, uh, absolutely. I live in the small town of Ripon, but I guarantee those guys see some shit every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You, I mean, it's you, not to the degree because the population is not the same, but you're going to see the same. You got nuts calling all day long. You got people that are not mentally fit on the phone calling. You get all kinds of weird stuff going on. Then you get the actionable stuff that yeah. uh, those people cause problems yeah. or, I mean, it just doesn't stop. It's a roulette wheel. When they pick up the phone, it's a roulette wheel as you're driving around. 
Yeah, you, you don't ever know what's uh, what's going to happen. Um, it'll be boring and quiet one minute, and the next minute you're going code three to a shooting or you're involved in some massive fight or it's just like, it's just out of nowhere. Just things get wild. It's just the nature of that job, really, no matter where. And the town does have a history being the uh, the Mudville and all, you know, yes. the Chinese settled it. It's a casino town um, and whorehouses and it's the county seat and it's been all of that stuff. I think that when stuff happens in Stockton, I think the police department has a good handle on what goes on there as opposed to the way you see some other cities react to stuff because they don't do that in Modesto. It, it seems like it runs different in Stockton and I it think does. that's a tradition thing. I think it's a... Do you find, do you find tradition steeped in that police department? based on the way the city was they do have a lot of tradition but i think it's just uh it's a really good police department um i'm actually very proud of the, the department because it just uh it does things just differently than everybody else and i think it's uh kind of gives other departments uh something to kind of strive to be like it's a it's a really good department yeah i'm billy teague uh, i work for stockton pd i've been up there for not quite 20 years and that's actually how i met dan i didn't know him before but once i joined the forest and started working up there quickly noticed dan lowry as an example to follow the guy has been a service legend up there for a while one of the longest running members on our SWAT team. He's a motor cop. He's a helicopter pilot. He served in multiple branches of the military. Uh, it did not take long for me to see this guy as somebody that I should look up to. And that's what I've done for almost 20 years. I met that guy through you. I've known uh, Billy for a long time now. We've worked together as uh, motorcycle cops, quickly became friends. He's, uh, he's an amazing person, very intelligent, a good friend someone that I've been honored to have in my life. What do you know to be true about Dan? That's I think right. Dan's one of the most genuine human beings that I know of. The guy doesn't try to hide anything from you. If he's got an emotion one way or the other, you're going to hear about it. I think a lot of that comes with spending your life in service, working for other people, or for the benefit of other people, I should say, and putting yourself second. And that's one of the things that I know for sure about Dan is there is not a request that comes from a person he's ever met in his life that won't get answered to the best of his possible ability. Shirt off your back doesn't even begin to describe it. I know he's been there for me in a pinch more than once, and I've gone out of my way to pay him back, but I don't know if I'll ever feel like I actually did so. Yeah, what's next on the list, Billy? Tell me a super funny, maybe embarrassing story about Dan. Right. So the police department in Stockton started to highlight some of the talent that we got working for us. They opened a YouTube channel, and they started doing a thing called the SPD Spotlight, and they were highlighting some of the people that serve with us that have done notable things, either in their police service or other parts of their life, or just as human beings all around. So Dan was a logical pick. The guy's been a Marine an army pilot, a SWAT operator, a motor cop, and it didn't take long for him to get the tap to do an episode of one of these things. And I was really excited for him. And when I saw the finished product come out, I couldn't help but notice this big old noogie he had on his forehead on the day they were filming. And I felt bad, but I had to ask him, dude, what happened? And he uh, he ended up walking into a door while he was working on something, left a big old mark on his forehead and just had to go on forward and soldier through. And he did a great job. I don't think if you're paying attention to the video that you're even going to notice. But I don't know, now that I mentioned it, you might see it. <laughs> about halfway through you just started recalling what happened i can see in your face what happened yeah you don't forget something like that <laughs> um if you notice in the spd spotlight video when i'm talking you'll see a, a pretty good gash on my forehead um <laughs> i was giving a class this particular day to some uh, some new young officers and uh, so i had gone downstairs to the roll call room doorway from the ladder well to the doorway to the roll call they're very close to each other and i was kind of in a hurry because i was running a little bit behind 
mine. So I was closing one door, opening the other. And I have no idea to this day how I managed to open the door right into my own face and uh, hit it hard enough to where it split my head open. And I walked in and blood's coming down my forehead. And I had to acknowledge to them, yes, I do know that my head is bleeding. So let's just get past that and move on with this class. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Now, I know from spending years around Dan and learning about his past that Dan is from Manteca. I know that Dan has a huge respect for his hometown and he's only a couple minutes away today from the house he grew up in back in the day. He kept a strong tie to the community. His parents lived there up until their last day and Dan was always there by their side. Nicest people you ever wanted to meet in your life. Never met him before and I was pushed up to their breakfast table and fed until I couldn't eat anymore and man just treated like royalty. And I think that's something that comes not just from the family but from where the family lives. And of course Manteca is where this family made their home. Um, military memorabilia and he's participated in multiple military expositions in parades. When uh, the 9-11 tribute came through town he was asked to be a part of that with some of his equipment. And I just think that without that, the, the community would have missed out on a lot of reverence for people who've served this, this country as much as Dan has and the way he keeps it remembered. Something you'd like to say to him, Bill? I think I just want to highlight how human Dan Lowry really is. If you've ever met him, you probably thought drill instructor, hard dude, wouldn't want to mess with him and maybe not that approachable. But I got to tell you, the exact opposite is true. Dan Lowry has proven to me and I think anybody else that's ever spent more than five minutes with the guy that he is one of the better human beings around. Thank you, Billy. Appreciate it. It's hard hearing people say such nice things about you. Um, You're a good guy, though. I really appreciate it. And coming from the people that are that are saying these things, it's uh, it's humbling. And uh, I couldn't appreciate it more but you, uh, ended, you ended up in the motor i went into the motors and i was a motor cop for about 17 years usually you, that's you, a long time yeah, yeah usually you do that for about five or six years and you got to rotate out it was a really good job though i liked getting paid to ride a motorcycle um i definitely enjoyed that i love motorcycles you just showed me one in your house what was that yeah, thing that's, uh, uh, i'm all hey look at the rice rocket i'm being a smart ass look at that beautiful bike what is it that's the uh the honda rc 51 the nikki hayden race bike edition and uh the, the race uh, replica and uh, everything in your place is complicated to me everything i'm looking at uh, behind you there's a helicopter uh engine uh yeah. you know and and you are just uh you've got so much talent you don't even know it i mean and i'm proud to know you man um and with, with saying that you go into the motor and then they um they helped there was an establishment a department the in-house post certified motor officer uh, i really loved i mean i love riding the bike i really love training days because uh you just get paid to just practice and get better uh, you know at riding your bike um how heavy are those bikes around 500 pounds probably five six hundred pounds you know the heart we, we when i first started we had a kz 1000 then we went to the, the the harleys and then we went to the bmw which they're all great bikes um i like the the harley because it looked cool uh, but the bmw was just a nice riding bike and um and it's very challenging the type of riding that we do and it's very difficult and it takes a long time to learn how to do the things that we do on the bikes and you have to be that good on these bikes to be able to do the things that we need to be able to do so enjoying training days all the time i always loved it so much that i always wanted to be a trainer and i kind of like i kind of enjoy teaching uh, especially if it's something that i'm very uh passionate about that was definitely one of those things a lot of people aren't built for that yeah yeah did you find that you had a way with people 
Um, I, yeah. Or an understanding that you felt you could explain things and people were uh, more open to it when you talked to them, maybe as opposed to somebody else. Yeah, you just try to... Um, make the make the complex appear simple. simple. Yeah. Breaking it down Barney style, trying to make it to where it's just like... First line on my resume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of that guy. I was never yeah. the most talented in the room, but I could yeah. probably tell you how to do it yeah. in a layman's term. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and I, I really enjoyed doing that. So I became a motor trainer and eventually, just through the years, I became the senior um, trainer and then... We put together and um, started our own in-house post-certified motor school. And so we'd get new motors. I would run them through this motor school. POST is an acronym. uh, That is a police officer standard in training. So it was certified by them. And so they were, we would normally send our motors, our our motors to be out to different motor schools around in the Valley here. Oh, okay. And then now we're able to do it right in-house in our own uh, own department. So yeah, that was, uh, we started that and uh, it's, we still have that to, to this day. Now, soon after you go in, you remember the SWAT team too. Yeah. Um, hey, cowboy, we need you in the SWAT team. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't think that I wanted to do that because um, it seemed like it was similar to the Marine Corps and stuff, and I just felt like I'd already kind of done all that. But then my buddy kind of talked me into putting in for it. I just felt like I just had done that kind of stuff, similar to, and I was too many guns, Dan. Nah, not too many guns, just a. Uh, you're adding a lot more work to your plate, which you're already. You know, I'm already on the motor. I'm 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 on call. Uh, to come out in the middle of the night to to investigate uh, fatality collisions and um, and then plus all the extra duties that we have to do, but he convinced me to put in for it. I put in, I tried out, and I got selected number one, and I uh, went to the SWAT team. And it's tough. It's not easy. I mean, you have to earn your place, and rightfully so. What's your strong point in the SWAT team? What do you think your strong point is? I think. Uh, Are you a good aim? Your hands don't sweat. I was a pretty good. <laughs> I mean, what you know? I've always been a, a pretty good shot, but. You know, you think you're a good shot, and then you go to a team like that, and that team is legit, and those guys, really those shoot. guys can shoot. Oh, yeah. It was, it was impressive. You know, you go there and you see this is obviously where the the heavy hitters are. These guys are legit, legit dudes. And I had some amazing operators in front of me. These guys were awesome, and they taught me so much um, that kept me safe later um, on after they had moved on. Uh, so I think I spent about 16 years all together on the SWAT team, served a little over 500 high-risk search warrants and uh, call-outs through that time period. It's a very active team. Um, you ever been shot? I've not been shot. I've been shot at quite a bit, but uh, never never been hit. Uh, a little bit uh, hard. Done, done some shooting? I'm hard to hit. Done yeah, some done. shooting in, in the line of work? Have you, fired your, uh, have you discharged your weapon? Not in the police department, no. Never? No. All this time in Stockton. Yeah. Big, badass Stockton, and you never had to. Do you think Stockton gets a bad rap by name? It does. Yeah, sure, it does. I just like when people talk about Stockton uh, because of its makeup. Yeah. That pisses me off a little bit. Never been shot. Been shot at. Oh, yeah. Uh, in a SWAT situation or in a uh, just running somebody down and they pull out a gun and start firing or Both. something like that? Both. Both. Yeah. Really? That was probably um, one of the best things that I ever did was going to the SWAT team. I never. Why? realize how much of a part of my life it was going to become um, because you build this bond with these guys and uh, and you you suffer with them and you go through amazing situations and 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 you're these guys that you trust with your life you know I completely trust the person next to me and uh, more so than when you were in the military yes yeah it was amazing it was the most amazing why do you think that's different well, it's just a close-knit group of guys that are... Uh, because you're centrally from the 
same location. Yeah. And we're, I mean, you lived, you don't live with people at the police force. You lived with the people in the military. I mean, yeah. Is that a reason why? Hey, no. you know what? I've lived with you. I know what you're about. But 16 years, over 500 high risk search warrants. Oh, I mean, I'm going into yeah. harm's way over and over and over again with these guys. Way and different. Tra- and then I train every month with these guys and we, it's very physical. We're running, um, doing physical challenges and we suffer together. When you go through all that stuff, uh, you become. What is the unit? How big is the SWAT unit? Or was it then? I believe, um, I want to say we're about 30 operators all in all with sergeants. And operators. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, your, your SWAT guys are operators. Uh, What's your specialty in the SWAT? Because um, I got the guy that handles the robot. You're not that guy. No. we. we oh, you're the drone guy too. Oh, no. The drones weren't out back then, no, were they? No. Um, you know, you got to be able to do everything. So that's... Uh, you can be able to do any one of the jobs at any given time. You seem like you'd be a good negotiator. I watched that movie the other day with uh, <laughs> Kevin Spacey and uh, Sam Jackson. You yeah. see that? Yeah. That's like, that's a pretty good movie. <laughs> Anything stick with you from your SWAT days? Or really? is that another you don't care to talk? Yeah, you know, there's a lot that sticks with me. I mean... Just that's all later. That's a book. Unbelievable. Maybe, maybe a book after you're not on the <laughs> payroll anymore. Unbelievable stuff. You know, just unreal. It's just amazing. I it, think it, you're going to be... I think... I think this podcast will be the catalyst to you writing a book because I've got disc jockey friends that have written books and these guys don't know anything about anything. I've been nowhere and they're writing books and they're interesting. Yeah. But you know, podcasts are interesting too. Just listening to somebody speak and you are incredible. You're an incredible human in the year. You listen to everything you've done. Now we're, we're back. You're in the SWAT. You've been, uh, just, you've, you've done so much. So SWAT team. And then in 2007, you're just not busy enough, Dan. You enlist in the California National Guard, and you are accepted to warrant officer candidate school. Yeah, so after 9-11... And I you don't think you're sort of... You don't think, oh, you know, uh, well, well, you know, you're a cowboy. This guy, the guy that's the voice that's talking to me over there is not the guy I see. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not. Uh, your, your resume just continues to rise where people would be going down. Your resume is continuing to rise. Your story is continuing to be told and continuing to get complicated. Well, I, I was fortunate to have uh, just so many uh, opportunities, you know, um, to present themselves and, and be able to do these things. So, um, yeah, very fortunate. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to the national guard and decided um, I would join and, start putting a packet together to go to warrant officer candidate school. Cause I still hadn't got to fly and I still wanted to do that. Um, so I figured I knew we I, started talking about your love of flying. That's how the podcast started. Yeah. And we have not even talked no. about you flying yet. And we are down into uh, 2007. Yeah. Well, y- you know, um, up into 2007 and, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting older now um, to the Army standards. You're not supposed to be over 27 years old. I'm 35 at the time that I'm going to apply for flight school. Um, so I have to get an age waiver. Okay. Um, and then um, I had uh, astigmatism and I, I had a problem with my depth perception. I couldn't pass that test. So I had a, um, went and got LASIK eye surgery. Best and, thing you ever did? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it got me. Were you scared? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, yeah. I went and had double cataract surgery, but I watched it on YouTube first. Yeah. And I went in there knowing what was going to happen, and it was no big deal. It was like, oh. a, it was six minutes or something. Yeah. This guy was done in yeah. no time at all. No time at yeah, all. Yeah, six crazy. minutes I walk out, I can see fine. Wow. So you were lucky enough to have something, uh, you were lucky enough for astigmatism to, f- to f- fix your, or be fixable. 
you were lucky enough to have LASIK fix your astigmatism, and yeah. now you can fly. Yes. Yeah, so I... At well, 35. Well, I still had to, you know, put this packet together and, and do all this work um, and then go to the board uh, in Sacramento and get boarded. You know, you get sat down and asked a bunch of questions, and um, I figured I'm going to do everything I can. I used to get boarded at home, but it was different. <laughs> yeah. My mom used to beat me with this board, well, and it had holes in it. Yeah. That was my version of being boarded. <laughs> I like your version a little yeah. better. Well, uh, what kind of questions they ask you? Um, they were. What I want to know about what are they really trying to get after when they're talking to you at that particular? Everybody's digging around and wanting to know something about you. What do they want to know at this point? Well, they want to know why you want to do this and um, where do you uh, think you're going to go? You know, how far do you want to go with this? And you're not going to fly helicopters and rob banks now with this or, with this uh, intelligence that we're teaching you. We want you to put it towards some good use. You're not going to use it in a bad way. I think what they want to know is um, is because they're going to invest a lot of money in you. And, and am I going to get my investment back? Are you going to, you know, you're going to come here, get your schooling and you're going to actually, you know, be, stay in the military and, 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 you know, pay back. Is this like, lie detector type stuff where no. they hook you up to machines, that kind of seriousness? Or no, no, you okay. just sat down in a room uh, with some of uh, the main uh, senior aviators and um, aviation related people in the state. And they just ask you these questions. And uh, I come out of the board and um, I made it. I got uh, selected for uh, flight school. And warrant officer candidate school. So off I went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. Uh, I remember, you know, wanting this so bad until the night before it was time to leave. I had to now, I got a really good life. Um, I have my, my, my small little ranch that I've always dreamed of. I worked hard to get all this stuff. And now I have this wonderful life that I made for, for myself. And now I'm realizing it's just set in that I'm about to leave everything that I love. And uh, I'm going to have to, you know, be gone for probably two years more than likely it was rough i got out there and um it seems you've done that all it seems you've done that already so many times you you gotta go unpack your bag at camp david you gotta go unpack it to eighth and i you got to uh you've done all of this stuff and now you're like oh i got my place and i'm gonna pick all this well do you want to fly a plane or do you know you want to fly a copter do you not want to fly a copter is what it's become now right that's what it's become is how bad do you want this and uh so i have to do this if i want to we're almost 18 years we're almost double your age from when you started in thinking you'd want to be a helicopter pilot and i'm and i'm starting late all these guys uh and, and gals that are going to the same thing i'm going in they're much younger they're all 27 or younger as they're supposed to be and so you know i get there and i'm like the grand old man of flight school you know at 35 years old I'm, kick all their asses yeah. up, can't you <laughs> yeah. had you found the weights yeah were you already starting yeah. in on the weights yeah i was in the, in the weights at that point yeah. so um i was that buffed old guy is how i would get described <laughs> um nah, you still you look you don't look old I look a little older than you do. I guess if you grow some of that, your facial hair gray, is it gray yet? Oh, yeah. Out? Oh, yeah. You got gray? Okay, sure. so you're never going to see a beard on you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm saying you're not coloring the gray. It's a little too short. You got the one, you cut your own hair? Yes. Is that one's on the, do you do your own? Yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. When did you start cutting your own hair? Um, COVID. Oh. I used to do, in the Marine Corps, I used to do barracks cuts for guys, so I kind of oh. learned how to oh, okay. how to do a fade, um, and then... Uh, and then COVID hit. And I couldn't go to the barber shop no more. So then, where Dan Lowry? Well, Can I get a fade <laughs> up in here? Well, I got, I got uh, these animal clippers, and uh, they seem to work on humans too. So uh, I, I got a truck mirror so I could see the back, and I uh, just started cutting it. And there, I went to. Uh, we started out with warrant officer candidate school. I went through that, um, and it's like you know, the older you get, the harder it is to go back and feel like you're starting again. You know, and going through these things where. Um, you're a warrant officer candidate and they're yelling at you again and you're dumb and you don't know anything and you're new and you're doing that stuff. You man, I've already done that. I've already been there. I've done it, you know, through Marine Corps boot camp. I did it, you know, for the police academy, all these different for the SWAT team. And then here I am doing it again. 
Um, and, and you know, it was tough, but I wanted this so bad. There's nothing that's going to stop me. I don't care what it is. Nothing will stop me. Um, so I get through that. Um, I become a warrant officer. And then, so there's more schooling after that. We go through the next class, the next one. We go through a thing called SEER, which is a, um, a survival, evade, resist, and escape. So How long is the total program? Um, it took me two years to get through the entire program. And that's what you thought before you went in two years. I wasn't sure. It's, it's a date to date thing. It's a, it's a, Hey, you're starting here and you're going to graduate on this date or you, you have know, to, you, you start here and we don't know what's going to happen because there was bubbles. Cause there's so many people okay. going through, there was these bubbles where you'd get stuck and have to wait for the next one. And, um, so gotcha. it, it took, it was drug out for a, a long period of time, but you know, I went through the Sear school and, uh, it's like, uh, it's a school as if, um, if we're, fl- it, it kind of, trains you in case we're flying and we get shot down uh, in, in combat and you get captured. It's just how to uh, conduct yourself. Behind enemy lines. Yeah, if you're captured. And it's pretty legit. There's a lot of useful things that they, te- they teach us and some uh, really very intense training. It was not fun. It was probably some of the worst training I've ever had, but it was some of the best training I've ever had, so it was good. you got to have a big brain to do a helicopter thing, just to oh, be a basic helicopter. No, people think that. Um, Come on. It, it, you don't have to. It's it, a lot of numbers, isn't it? it? It's, a lot of- it's, no, it's not a lot of numbers. Uh, it's, uh, it's not rocket surgery. It's, it's, you know what it is? Is uh, having good common sense um, and um, good decision-making skills, uh, especially in, in a stressful situation. That is key. And I was, I was told early on in flight school, really good um, um, instructor pilot. And he told me, Dan, he said, anybody can get in a helicopter and wiggle sticks around, right? And, and, and figure it out eventually. That's not what makes a good pilot. A good pilot is someone that makes good sound decisions um, under stress. And, uh, and can stay ahead of the aircraft and think while you're flying and have good situational awareness. That's key. That's what makes a good pilot. And, and I didn't believe it at the time. I was like, what is he talking about? No, it's, it's how you wiggle the sticks, but it's not. Um, I mean, you, you want to have a good control touch and you want to be able to um, fly the aircraft well, of course, but that's not the key element there. So I finally make it through flight school and you come out as a, as a commercial rated, instrument rated pilot. I'm now trained in, you, you know, you start in the primary aircraft. We're in 2009. Yeah, so the, two, the TH-67 is a Bell Jet Ranger, basically, and that's what you start out in. Then you go to your advanced airframe, and I flew, um, I trained in the UH-60 Blackhawk. And so then I get out of flight school, I want to say, it's like, yeah, into 2009, started 2010, and um, I go back to California, and I am getting sent to Iraq again, but this is, you know, the Iraq War now, and uh, with the first of the 140th, it's 1st Battalion down in Los Alamitos, California. So... I come back and I had about a month or so um, at home after being gone for two years. And then I had to leave home again. And now I'm going on deployment for a year. So I was gone for overall, you know, three years with a little, just like a month or so in between there um, before I had to leave again. So three years of my life and I was just like picked up everything left. And, you know, I'll, I don't know when I'm coming back, but I'm at some point come back, you know, and I remember. I remember getting ready to leave and walking around the shop, my favorite place in the world, and just looking at everything and wondering, you know, not sure if I'm going to see this stuff again. Um, you know, you hope that you will, of course, but you don't know. So I like to look at it and just looking at things one last time before I leave. And then uh, I flew commercial down to Los Al, and then we got our 20 Blackhawks, and we flew to Fort Hood, Texas, and did our pre-deployment training, and then shipped off to Balad, Iraq, where I flew 
So you're a UH-60 Blackhawk pilot. Yeah, so I'm flying UH-60s um, out of Balad, and I was we started out. I think I started out doing ring routes during the day, which is just going from base to base, and you all the jargon, man. Yeah, yeah, all that jargon, all that talk, shop talk. Yeah, you're you're. Uh, I'm so underqualified for this interview. No, no, you're basically just uh, you're, at this point. A pilot should take over this interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we're picking up Joe's, you know, and we go to the next fob and we land and we drop them off, and other guys get on and we fly to the next one. And folks get off folks get like a big airborne taxi going from base to base and uh which i thought was weird because like everybody was always going somewhere there's so many people that needed to go somewhere nobody was happy where they were they always wanted to go somewhere else but uh, you know the guys are going on leave or whatever and and so they needed to transfer to somewhere else so we're flying guys around and then later on i got selected to do um the uh um the air assault mission that we had we had several mission sets and this one was uh at night and if we would get tasked, we would go to whatever FOB this, this unit was at, because whoever would, the, the special forces would get a mission that they needed to, to go and uh, execute. And so they would then task us with uh, the, the mission of taking them to where they need to go um, at night. And the mission, we would sit down and get, uh, go to the FOB, whatever FOB they were at, because it didn't, you know, whoever requested us, we would go there. And we would sit down with these guys. Um, it could be um, we flew SEALs, um, special forces, just um, any one of those special units. Um, and they would brief us on what they were doing. And they would have usually several guys that they had photos of. And they would say what they'd been doing, you know, IEDs or whatever like that. And then the mission was to capture or kill this person. Um, and then usually a few of them. And so then we would usually have four Blackhawks at night blacked out and under goggles and we would fly night, uh, night vision goggles and we would, we would fly them in uh, to their target and then usually landed in somebody's backyard at night, you know, and uh, kind of surreal. I remember sitting there the first time I did it was very intense, um, very stressful, um, but it was awesome because you knew you were doing something for real. And I wasn't uh, just flying around in circles this time and uh, i remember landing and through the goggles i can see the ir laser sights on the 60s and i could see them sweeping as my door gunners are sweeping the guns back and forth on the buildings and stuff all around us you know i'm just waiting for gunfire to open up at any moment you know and it's just plexiglass windows and stuff so there's no i mean there's some armor on the bottom and on the on the, on the door you got an armored seat and it's got what they call a chicken plate on the side of it. They call it chicken plate because you, you're chicken if you put it out there, you know, but it's there to protect you. Problem was, was those things get kind of gunked up and dirty. And so I wasn't able to normally be able to pull that chicken plate back by myself. The crew chief would have to come and get it because it was, I, was, I couldn't get the right angle to be able to pull on it hard enough to get it to come back. So I knew that if we were in a crash or hard landing, um, I wasn't going to be able to pull that plate back. And if one of my crew chief's not available or he's injured, he can't get to me to pull that plate back. I'm going to be trapped in this thing. So I just always left it back. And I just figured, you know, uh, big sky, little bullet. I'll take that chance, but at least I can get myself out of this thing if I need to. So watching those lasers go. And so we, uh, we insert these guys and we take off and then uh, we go land at a base nearby. We sit on the P, which is uh, the, the APU, which is auxiliary power unit. So we shut off the, the big engines and we just sit on the small one. And that uh, one, 
operates our radios and hydraulics and whatnot. So we just run on, uh, on, the, on the P and listen to the radio. So we listen to the chatter going back and forth. They have, I think it was Hammer 2-2 was the AC-130 Spectre gunship that would be overhead when we were inserting. You know, they have all the guns out the side of that airplane and stuff and, 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 and laser precision. So when we were inbound, they would, you know, we'd call Sparkle and Burn. And so the AC-130 would put this big IR. Nobody else can see it but us because we got the night vision goggles. You see this big, huge... Paint, painting somebody. It's painting it. Yeah, so it's okay. a big light. And then the, the, so that's the burn. And then the sparkle would be this sparkling laser that would go right to the center. And that would tell me exactly where I need to go. So I can be right on target because I got to get these guys. You want to get them, you know, on their target. So otherwise they're going to have to do more work and, 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 and walk further. So, uh, you know, you're trying to um, take care of your customer because uh, that's that's what we do. And so we'd sit there um, waiting and listening to the radio chatter, waiting for them to be done with their raid. And uh, they we call it uh, loggering. Uh, what we do is just sitting there waiting. And then once you start hearing, they're starting to get in that posture where they're ready for egress. Um, we start firing everything back up. And then as soon as we get the call, sometimes it'd be the, the you know, there'd be an ingress place that we would, uh, a target position where we drop them off. And then the egress was usually on the other side of the town that they were going through. Um, but sometimes they would call us and say, hey, that, that uh, egress point's no good. We're, we want to be picked up here and we get another coordinate and we'd have to plug that in and go there. And uh, so then we come flying in, we land, and I remember always seeing, you know, you see them all in chalk orders, all lined up, waiting for us, and uh, they have these little IR lights, they, you can call them fireflies, they, on the top of the helmet there, and only can see them with goggles on, you know, and I could see all those things lined up like little dots. Oh, the, the li- oh, so it's only infrared, so you've yeah. got infrared goggles, you're the only person, that can, we, people yeah. can't have light, blinking lights on there, we get the heads no. on. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, so it's okay. Nobody else can Don't gotta that. tell me twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one of the times coming in and landing, I see the, uh, the guys has a, um, a prisoner, and he's, you know, in his normal um, Iraqi-type garb, and um, he's got a bag over his head um, with, a, with a, a glow stick tied to it. Wow. And uh, his hand's tied behind his back, and he's, you know, they bring him out and, and uh, put him in the back of the aircraft, and away we go. In 2011, you returned home from the war. Why? Was time over? Or? Yeah, so our, uh, our deployment was up, and uh, it was time to come home. And where does the uh, UH-72 Lakota helicopter come from in Stockton? Well, so um, I had uh, I had come back and I was on my leave from the deployment in like 30 days. And so I was enjoying some time off. And uh, one of my buddies that I deployed with, he was in, in my unit here in Stockton and he had deployed with me down there as well. Well, he was coming back, but he had been in this unit for a while. I hadn't been here yet as a pilot, you know. And so I, I, he needed to go see the commander one day. And so uh, I went with him and I was just kind of sitting in the back. And uh, I remember the commander was talking to my buddy and then he looked at me. He's like, you, you, you want a job? He says, you want to fly uh, Lakotas? And I was like, yeah, that sounds Wow. So here's it's all. That's yeah. all. Yeah, it's like, that sounds great. And we hadn't even got them yet. There was, the army was just getting ready to field them. They were still flying the OH-58s. And uh so I was like, yeah, that sounds great. And uh, so they sent me to the transition course, which they normally, you go to fly new airframe, you go to army course and he, you know, you go through this long course and get tested and you pass, then now you're qualified in that airframe. Well, they, the, the aircraft was so new, we didn't even have one in the army yet. So I got to go to the actual um, Airbus factory course to fly this, which was a civilian course, which was even more fun because if the army can do anything, they can take the fun out of chocolate chip cookies. So, I mean, they can make flying helicopters not fun. It's, it's, it can be uh, rough. So get to, to <laughs> you know, 
to to get to to get to go to hey, the military could take the fun out of chocolate chip cookies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. If, if they find out <laughs> that you're that you're enjoying yourself, they will put a stop to it immediately. Oh my goodness. So uh, so I go to the civilian course, and it was just a good time. And you still learn uh, everything you need to know. Yeah, nobody's screaming at yeah, you. Yeah, and you just it's just fun, and it was just a wonderful time. I really enjoyed that experience. Um, so then. Uh, we started fielding the new aircraft and picking them up in Mississippi and flying them all the way back to California, which was uh, just a blast as well, getting to fly. I flew over the Grand Canyon. I flew down the strip of Las Vegas right next to the uh, uh, stratosphere. So we were leaving Henderson, so we called Karen Airport, the traffic controller, and asked for the Vegas strip. And uh, at first he said, you know, we're not into tours around here. We don't have time for that. And I, thought, I was like, no, that kind of is a bummer. But then he realized who we were. And he's like, oh, no, absolutely. It's approved uh, as requested, and thank you for your service. It was really cool. It was just super cool. And uh, so it, it was a low level. That's how you have to fly the transition. Um, you're getting routed because okay. I need to go from here to, you know, from this side to that side. Uh, it makes uh, the, the workload for the controllers easier to have these routes and these transitions to where. Rather than having. Yeah, yeah just say, okay. hey, hey, go do this. Okay. And I go to this point and I go to that point. And he yeah. knows where I'm going. Gotcha. So And so, yeah, to fly low like that over the over the Vegas Strip, right along the side of the stratosphere. And I could see people in the stratosphere and they can we could see each other. We're so close to oh it. Oh, my it was, goodness. It was amazing. It was another great experience. We're fielding the aircraft, bringing them back to Stockton. Um and uh, the, the Lakota or the EC-145 in the State Guard, it's the only place they have them in California, um, is in Stockton. And that aircraft is here for uh, the state of California, for the people of California, which is just an awesome job. You know, we train constantly to be prepared and be ready for natural disasters, earthquakes, uh, wildfires. We work the fires with Cal Fire every year. We do tons of search and rescue. We have hoist capability to rescue someone. Eradication, you know, on, on, on uh, um, public lands. Um, then we we have some versions that have the FLIR on it. So we use that for search and rescue as well. Use that. Um, that is the forward-looking infrared radar. Forward-looking uh, infrared radar FLIR. And, and so the day camera, you know, it's a, a highly zoomable camera, uh, high definition. So um, we, our company is security and surveillance is, is, is what we do. But there's so much more that we do on top of that as far as like civil unrest or any kind of needs of the state of California. Whenever we're going to do... Um, evacuations. I mean, anything that you can think of, um, pretty much that the, the state might need uh, from an airborne asset, this aircraft can do it. And that's what we do. Tell me about how things have changed in the helicopter from when you started in, in, uh, in the sand to what you've got to deal with now and then how we're moving forward into a drone operation and how that starts to uh, filter into your everyday uh, learning. Uh, you mean like the technology in the aircraft? Because, you know, now we're flying... These Lakotas that have uh, what we call upper modes or autopilot, and um, so you can hand fly the aircraft, which normally you do often, or you can literally just plug in where you want to go, and the aircraft will just take you there. Um, it'll just fly. You can um, put an altitude in. It'll climb and level off at that altitude. It'll fly like an instrument approach, hands off. Um, you just have to manage a three-axis autopilot, so you still have to manage the power with the collective, but it does everything else for you. So it's kind of like... Uh, well, you know, from like the, the Bell 505, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, is all manual. doesn't have any of that stuff. It's still got hydraulic boosted flight controls and all that, but it doesn't have all those bells and whistles. So it's kind of like I always equate it to like the like driving a brand new Mercedes. It does all these fancy things. It has all these gizmos on it that are just a, really nice to have. Um, and uh, the 505 is like kind of like a 55 Chevy. It's all manual, but it's fun as heck and, and you know, and it's cool. So that's kind of how I 
You know how you're getting old, right? You should remember about the good old days in the manual <laughs> operate. Gosh yeah. darn, I love it's fun to fly. You're yeah. starting to show your age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> they're all here with the cruise control and all, the, all that good stuff. And you, you relics are ready for these dinosaurs to, to be doing their thing. You ever think you'd be called a relic? Uh, no. You feel like you're a relic? Angry old guy, maybe. Do you feel like a relic when you showed, like you said when you got there, you felt like they, like, hey, there's the old, there's the old really? uh, the yeah, buff guy. In, in that situation, yeah, I definitely. <laughs> and I wasn't even old. <laughs> but, you know, you talked about the... Uh, the, the drone. The, in, the, in 2017, a drove, uh, drone program came along. Was it a toy? You thought, wow, this is a toy, and then it's no, not a toy so much? or It's going to be a tool from the beginning, um, but it can be used for just, you know, fun as well. If you're taking just pictures of your property or whatnot, always a concern as a pilot because you know people don't always do what they're supposed to do with things and don't act responsibly so they you know it's not supposed to go above 400 feet when they take that thing and go see how high they take that thing if that thing goes through my rotor system it's going to be you know a pretty bad day so um and i've seen them how they could be weapons yeah. Oh, I didn't even think they could be in the hands of the, just anybody that can fly them up and yeah, there you are up there doing your thing. Yeah, I seen uh, I seen one thousand feet one time and uh, go right by my window and that it get your attention a little bit. It was not supposed to be there and it's really dangerous. But you know those things are going to happen. So you know I was always trying to we're, we're always trying to work towards building a uh, a, a full size air unit at the police department, but. Uh, what took them so long? It's a, it's a super expensive uh, program that's amazing, and it'll do a lot for you, but um, it takes money. And, you know, that's obviously hard to come by sometimes. And uh, so instead of being that we hadn't got to the point for a full-size unit, um, they started wanting to put stand up a uh, UAS unit. So I was asked to help with that, being that I was a, a commercial-rated pilot. They figured it'd be good because I understand airspace and I know, you know, the, the FAA regulations and whatnot for the full size. And um, is it the same to fly? I know it's not the same. Product. Can you fly airplane airplanes also? Um, no. Um, I've. Could you wiggle the sticks and get yeah, an airplane to go? Sure, sure. I just. Okay. Not something for no. me. I never wanted to fly airplanes. They're not, nowhere even remotely close to each other. No. And I'm just not interested in, in, in that. I Honestly, airplanes make me nervous. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll get in a big airplane. That's fine. But the little ones, I don't, I'm not crazy about that. So I'm good. So you ever get sick flying the helicopter? Um, you ever get the stomachs? You know, very rarely. Because you're in control. Yeah. As long as I'm if driving. If you're in the passenger. Oh, forget it. Always. It's in, even you. Yeah. All these, all the time. Yeah. I get, I get yeah. sick to my stomach. Man. Yeah. Now, as I'm getting older, I seem to find myself getting sick to my stomach. You often wonder, you know, when you're in control, it's your, your game. Yeah. You're the yeah. center of what's happening for me. Yeah. When you're on the other side, it's mm-hmm. just like anybody riding the passenger seat, reading a book, going yeah. too fast on the highway. Yeah. So, um, um Tell me about the drone. The drone. What What does the Stockton Police Department do with that drone program? Uh, they use it for so much, like um, doing field searches or block searches, looking for a suspect that you know foot bailed into the block, or uh, looking for missing persons, or um, just collecting evidence, you know, from a crime scene. It's just in, endless with, with what it's capable of doing. But of course, I mean, it has its limitations too. Um, so I don't. It's not. It's definitely not a replacement for an air unit, but it's a very good um, supplement to the air unit. So how many operators are in the drone program? Um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I was the chief pilot for the unit and I am not anymore. And I'm not sure how many I want to say we had 20. Well, that's good. We had 20 pilots. At least there's 20, but 20 people there to do it, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, Unlike the helicopter. No. So, um, you know, me and a, a sergeant and a lieutenant, we all worked together to get that unit stood up and it's absolutely doing wonderful things. And, uh, 
Um, I'm proud of that unit and what it's become. And um, so I, I stepped aside from the from the UAS unit um, to to you know be able to put all my time into the full size unit. Um, we did all our research, got everything, um, just started working towards you know getting this unit stood up. You know, you need standard operating procedures. You need um, so you don't realize what you need. To yeah, try to do typographical, but design everything, yeah. books and yeah. all the stuff it's that huge. goes along. What, what's been your funnest thing uh, using the drone for to catch somebody? Uh, we'd have never got that without the drone. There were some um, some officers that were making contact with a the subject. They had the drone overhead and were watching this guy and watched him put a gun in his waistband. And uh, they were able to relay that to, to the ground unit so that that way they were prepared and knew, you know, what was going on as they were arriving and uh, made it safer for them. That's kind of stuff that that just makes you happy because you feel like you're, because those guys on the ground, those guys, those gals, they're my customer and they're the ones that I'm trying to take care of and make sure they have what they need. And um, to be able to do that, it just kind of felt good. Like, you know, we were, we were doing good things and I liked that and it made me happy that all this work and everything was now coming together and, and proving what we were doing was good. Drones, war, uh, come home, learn how to fly helicopters. That's not enough. In 2017, you graduate the Army's Instructor Pilot Course. What makes you join that? What is it? And tell me more about that. So, um, you know, being a warrant officer and a pilot, you always have to track something um, in addition to being a pilot. Stands, uh, standardization, which is being an instructor pilot, you train to the standard. Um, safety, you're a safety officer or maintenance, you'd be a maintenance test flight officer. Um, I always wanted to be an instructor pilot because like I've talked about before, I like teaching, especially when it's things that I'm really passionate about. So what do you do? What's the process? Where do you go? How do you do it? It takes a while to be able to get to go to instructor pilot school. Um, you got to kind of put in your time and, and, and do work and show that you deserve to go. And uh, finally, I got selected to, to go to um, the instructor pilot school. You got to be um, a good pilot at your unit and show good decision-making skills, show that you have a good work ethic. They don't want somebody that's not going to come in and show up and do what needs to be done after spending this money again on you to send you to the school and then, you know, you not be the right person for it's it. It's all an investment. It is, yeah. And and so, you know, you work hard and uh, you, you uh, show interest. And uh, so then I got told that I was going. So it was in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Is a um, We have a training site there, Army training site. And uh, Yuck. Uh, it was actually, you know, I really enjoyed oh, it's it. It's so hot there. Gee, many Christmas. But I went in the wintertime. Oh, okay. You've been in the summer? Arizona. Yeah, Dude, no, it's, my it's, goodness. it's like being on the sun. But the wintertime, it is absolutely beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I had a great time uh, being in Arizona. You know, I flew for three months on the border down there at the same place. You know, I flew the border mission for three months in the Lakota. Um, and what does that mean? You're just spotting people? We would normally just call them out and then call the uh, the agents in and direct them to just the like groups. you see. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, they're normally running dope or um, smuggling people. Yeah, we did that for, I worked down there for three months doing that. And then uh, when I went to the IP course, I'm back at that same place again there near Tucson at at, uh, Watts, which is the the, the Army's training site. Um, And I'm at the uh, instructor pilot course, which is six weeks. And it's uh, it's, it's pretty intense. Um, And, um, but it it was really, a really good course. Um, Of course, you're stressed out because you want to pass and, you don't want to look silly and you want to, you know, show that you're, uh, you know, a good pilot and uh, you know your stuff. So there's a lot of studying, a lot of work. The, the great thing about it is they set it up so that way you can take a civilian test 
at the same time while you're at the course, oh. the FA test. So they, you take the written there, and then as long as you pass that, your check ride to graduate instructor pilot school is also your check ride to get your civilian instructor license. So I leave there as an instructor pilot and a certified flight instructor and instrument examiner when I left there, which was huge. I mean, it's a big deal, and I was very, very, very happy to have that, and I'm very proud to finally, you know, it was one more of my goals to, to achieve that I finally got. It's a pretty awesome rating to have on the civilian side because it costs so much money to do that on the civilian side where, you know, the Army paid for it for me. So, but, I mean, they, they, they get their money's worth out of you. <laughs> you were riding motorcycles, the drone program, <clears throat> and then you helped stand up the first air support unit in Stockton, and you're the chief pilot. At this time, the only pilot. You know, we, we looked at different aircraft, and um, uh, as we were getting the unit stood up. We're in 2019 now. Now we're starting to get a little closer. Yeah. Um, we end up, uh, Bell ends up bringing out a, uh, a Bell 505, which is the brand new Jet Ranger. It's all completely redesigned, and they want to show it to us. And, you know, I'd seen one when it first came out. I just didn't think much of it, and I didn't think I wanted to see it, but they kept persisting to bring this thing out to to, to fly us in it so i was like okay just bring it out so they brought it out and we flew and it was one flight as soon as we landed i knew that that was the aircraft for us it changed my mind completely just from one flight it was that impressive um i just knew that this was because it was the it's brand new it's going to be a little more expensive up front but in the long run it's going to be under warranty it's brand new you know there's less chances of things unscheduled maintenance meaning surprise things breaking or or or, or needing to be fixed cuz i knew if this unit's just starting out all eyes are going to be on us now it's not available every time it's they need it it's not available guess what it's going to go away so you had better make sure you make the right decisions and and i got to get the right aircraft and Everything has to be perfect. We don't have room for air here. So this is, everything's got to go. Have you made a bad decision ever, Dan? Oh, sure, sure. What? Yeah. What kind of? Uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, you read too many drinks and ended up in the slammer? No, no, okay, no. Okay, well, that's a bad decision. Well, this is. I'm uh, talking about bad decisions. Well, I had, uh, you know, had to make a weather call. Uh, when we bought the 505. It was built in um, Canada and on Quebec. And I don't know if you know where Quebec is because I didn't. I have no clue. It is almost like on the east. Almost Russia. End. Almost Russia, right? <laughs> yeah, on the east end of Canada. Um, and it's really cold there in the wintertime. <laughs> was it colder than in Afghanistan or uh, Iraq? 40 below zero. It was pretty cold. That was with the wind chill factor. But still, Do the helicopters run in those types of temperatures? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But okay. Um, so <laughs> I'm flying. So we go there to pick it up. Uh, me and my uh, my tactical flight officer. He's the the TFO. Shout him out. What's his name? Uh, Rich Buckley. Hey, Rich. Uh, Sergeant Buckley. And uh, Sergeant. So, so he is the one that operates the camera and talks to the ground units. You know, obviously we don't even have that system in the aircraft yet because it's just come from the factory. We're going to take it to the outfitters that are going to install all that. But he's just there with me. But he's he's at that at that point was not a pilot. Uh, we've since trained him up to be, get, get his private pilot license as far as we've got him so far. But at that point, he's not a pilot at all yet. So he's just kind of riding along. So everything's kind of on my shoulders. I got to check weather. I got to get our figure out our flight route and make sure we can make it to our next fuel stop. You know, I, I crossed into the United States uh, um, in, near um, Delaware. No, Burlington, Vermont. I'm sorry. Burlington, Vermont is where cold I, areas. Yeah. So we go into Burlington and it was everything was frozen and uh, the weather was pretty sketchy. Uh, so um, we spent the night there the next morning. We're now like four days behind schedule because there were some paperwork problems at the factory. And so now, you know, I kind of feel a responsibility that I need to get back in a timely manner uh, because they're counting on me. I don't want to push it, 
and, and be dangerous, but at the same time, I need to be diligent in trying to get home. And uh, the next morning, the weather was kind of just so-so, and it was it was decent at my location that I was trying to get to, Oswaji, New York, but I couldn't really tell what the weather was in between because uh, there was nothing to report weather there. And so I was like, look, we got to at least make an attempt. I can't just sit here for another night and go another night behind uh, and, and not have made a even try to make a, an attempt at, at getting to our next stop. So the problem is, is between us and Aswaji is um, Adirondack Mountains. So I figured, okay, we'll fly down the mountains and we'll look at the passes and see if there's one that, that looks good and we'll um, try, to, try to go. And if not, we'll turn around, we'll come back and spend a night. At least we made the attempt. So the first pass I start flying up into, it starts to get bad real quick. The weather just starts coming down, and it's not good. So I turn around and come back down, fly a little bit further down the mountain range. And then I find a pass that looks pretty good. So I start flying the, the pass up into the mountains. And uh, so we get to um, you know a point where I'm at the, the, the point of no return, where um, I'm closer to Swaji than I am Burlington now. I can't, uh, I can't go back. I have to keep going forward. And then at that point, kind of everything went sideways on me and the weather just went all bad. The ceiling came down. The mountains are still getting higher to where, I mean, I can't even see the tops of the mountains anymore because of the clouds. And, uh, you gotta be kidding me. This is bad. I'm in the middle of Adirondack mountains. Uh, oh, that's and, a, that's and, not like here. That's yeah. like being at the top of Donner yeah. consistently for, the, for, uh, for miles and miles and miles. You know, the crazy thing is the, the, the mountains are way bigger than they look on the map. You know, they're only like a couple inches wide on the map. <laughs> Come on, that's all maps. They go go for miles. (laughs) How big are the Adirondacks? How how big is the spread of the Adirondacks? I I have no idea. They just (laughs) they they just kept going on and on and on. Oh my goodness! But uh, but once it started snowing, I knew we were in trouble because we don't have anti ice um, capability. Um, It's not made for that. And you know, we started getting ice buildup on the windscreen. And uh, but I just you know I I figured I'm going to keep picking my way through these mountains, and I just kept thinking to myself, um, I was almost sure that we weren't going to make it to the end of that flight, that we weren't going to live through this, but I wasn't going to quit and I wasn't going to stop. I was going to keep trying, but I just felt like I just made a bad decision. It was one of those ones that could have went either way. And I felt like I I made a big mistake and I might've got us into something that we might not get out of. So for about an hour there, I was pretty sure that that was, uh, that was going to be my last flight. Um, And that's about the fifth time (laughs) I've heard you say that you thought that that was going to be the last time. Yeah. Yeah. You don't find yourself close to any of these things ever in all the time you've done being a hero, a modern American (laughs) hero. You can go ahead and bend blush and you can (laughs) smile and look away and you can do all of those things, Dan, but you are an American hero. There's just too much there to unpack. Say it's like uh, just a lot of uh, amazing opportunities that I've been given. You haven't been given. You applied for most of them. Sure. Opportunities would be, oh, you know what, Dan? No, you've continued to add to your resume and add to your status in being a pilot, being a good human being, being a great lawman, always being the good guy. And people say, you know, they thank me for my service when I'm in my military uniform, and it, it embarrasses me a little bit, but I really appreciate it. It's really nice when people do that, but... It shouldn't. I do it. I hope not to embarrass folks. I just feel like I'm just like, you know, I... Uh, I still don't got the balls. Yeah, but it's, it, it's just, it's what I'm supposed to do, you know, and, and I get paid for it, too, on top of that, so I just kept working each ridgeline after the next, after the next, and every time I'd get over the next ridgeline, there's another one, and I was just like, man, this is, these just, the mountains go on forever. 
whatever, and we're, I just don't know if we're going to make it. Are you blind? Does, does the snow, the visibility is getting visibility? You don't low. You don't have to have visibility though. In this helicopter, you do. It's VFR only, so we can fly instruments in the in the in the Lakota. You're not at a height to where you go. Well, there's no possible way anything could happen. We just got to go this way and keep the keep her straight and keep going. That's not the way it works. No, okay. you take your hands off the flight control. The nose goes up and she rolls left. That's oh, okay. just what they do. So you have to fly it. Are they all she's? Uh, well, for me, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the fiddle sticks, yeah, the wiggle sticks, um, and then it, it had this terrain warning system on it, and it kept going off because we're so low to the to the to the terrain. Is this the same terrain that killed Kobe Bryant? The same kind of alert that the guy ignored? I mean, you can get into that. That's how it starts, you know. That's you start going down that road um, and stop, start making mistakes. But see, I'm trapped here because the 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 five hundred five can fly instruments. It's just not rated for it. Um, so in an emergency, if I had to, I can fly instruments, meaning I can go into the clouds, but I can't go into these clouds because it's already snowing here. So it's going to be freezing in those clouds. Invisible moisture and freezing uh, temperatures, the aircraft will then just start to build ice even more so than what we're starting to build right and now. And is it a weight issue or is it to where the, do they have dimples like a helicopter or like well, an airplane? Do they have dimples? What they, what happens is it's, um, you, you start to become weighted down and also it can also start to form on uh, the rotor blades, which is a, is a air, it's an airfoil okay. and you start to become you know, get less lift there. And then the, okay. the, the weight used to start to sink and you can't stop. So I figured I'm going to keep flying this thing until it won't fly no more. Then I'm going to find one of these snowy meadows and I'm going to land in it. And I'm going to start burn, burning stuff and try to stay alive as long as we can, because I know nobody's coming to get us tonight. Cause we're the only dumb dumbs that are gonna, in the middle of the they're, they're going to fly in the snow right, right now. So we're going to have to wait till tomorrow. And I don't know if we're going to live that long out here in that, in, in, in the snow. So well, those survival tactics they taught you in 89 and 90 are going <laughs> to come into play. How huh? we start salvaging and burning stuff if you have to land this thing in a meadow obviously you didn't no no so yeah i kept picking my way through those mountains and it finally came out the other side and uh we got to swanji new york and, you high five uh, um no i just wanted to be by myself for a little while oh uh, i just kind of sat by myself i was just stressed out i was just completely uh, it's it's hard to explain the was it a mistake in hindsight yeah i mean you know you look back it's like yeah no um you gotta get away from that mentality you know the military like you know mission first and you know got to get it done doesn't oh, matter what it takes at all here. You, you, you can't do that no, in, in this world different. here you know and it's it was another one of those learning experiences what we call like a significant emotional experience it's like you know one of those things you don't forget and you won't make that mistake again because i remember telling rich after that i was like look i don't ever want to be in a position where i don't know if i'm going to live to the end of this flight ever again i don't ever want to do that that's scary it was a it's a hard thing to explain you know how you feel when when i finally got on the ground and i walked into the, the office there the fuel place where we were getting gas and i just kind of sat down just kind of wanted to be in quiet peace and quiet because i just needed to process what just happened you know we got through that but then the next stop was niagara you know we went landed spent the night there the next day i flew over niagara falls in a bell 505 in normally restricted airspace yeah i called tower requested it he uh, he cleared me at a certain altitude i went to that altitude and i got to fly over it and took pictures and video and who gets to do that it was amazing i got another picture of about 1500 feet over downtown buffalo new york flying over downtown all along lake erie indiana all the way across you know the united states it was a rough trip because it would get unforecasted 50 knot headwinds you know and so now is wind the biggest monster for a helicopter pilot 
Well, if it's a headwind, it's a problem, right? Anything that flies likes a tailwind when you're flying and it likes a, uh, you know, a, a, a headwind when you're taking off or landing. With a headwind of 50 knots, now, you know, I'm going 50 knots less, but I'm still burning the same amount of gas. And so now I'm trying to figure out, can I make my fuel stop? Because I don't want to land this thing in a cornfield and have to figure out how I'm going to get someone to bring me some jet fuel out here and have to explain that to my boss. So it's very stressful and I'm the only one that can do the flight plan. And I can't like, hey, what do you think of this? He doesn't know. Bounce off. No. Exactly. So wow. it's all me. And I, I can't, it's like, well, how many times, you know, or are you at work, you're doing stuff and you make a mistake. I mean, it happens, right? I can't, I cannot make a mistake. Can't call in sick either. Can no, you? No, no, you can't call in sick. If I call in sick, the helicopter don't go nowhere. Now, is there someone to fly it? Do not have anybody else right now. Wow. It's, uh, it's not an easy problem to fix, you know, cause, uh, we like to have a law enforcement officer in the, in both seats. Oh, okay. Um, and that makes it harder. Oh, no civilian pilot with it. It's not the right. same. No. Oh, and so we, we want, uh, you know, be a commercial rated pilot as well and have experience because you can get yourself in trouble out there real quick. You know, it only takes one time, you know, you can't, you know, hit a curb, you know, you can't make a mistake like right. that. Uh, Cause you, you know, you can't just go put a new wheel on it and you're good because you're not probably going to live through it. And that's all these things that I went through in the, in the, in the army flying Blackhawks flying to Lakota mistakes that I've made. Did you ever um, put one down when you, did you ever think about uh, having to put one down in military? I had some situations uh, come up that um, got pretty sporty. I had another one where, you know, when I was flying that border mission and got uh, spatial disorientation at night um, and didn't know, but had uh, put in an incorrect input because of that dis- disorientation. It was pitch black, no stars. You couldn't see the, where the ground stopped and the sky began. So there was no horizon. You can't see nothing. And it just got real windy. I had my window, you know, my little slider window open. I got real windy. I couldn't figure out why. Come to find out, we were falling out of the sky tail first. Well, I finally figured out what was going on. But, you know, once that starts happening, brain starts spinning really fast and it goes into that fight or flight. And now it's getting harder. to. That's where the term fight or flight comes from. Yeah. You know, it's getting literally flight. Yeah. Harder to uh, process what I'm seeing right now because I'm stressed out. I know if I don't fix this within seconds, we're going to die. This is going to be it. Uh, I finally figured out what was going on. I put in some inputs and brought in some power and recovered the aircraft about 1,200 feet. So we were probably, you know, 30 seconds from... How far did you fall? We lost a couple thousand, 2,500 feet. Does it feel like you're falling? No. Oh, see, so you're completely... No. Just completely bewildered. Yeah. But it was another learning experience too, you know, because it was the way that I was holding my head while looking through the night vision goggles because we were searching for this this agent that was lost out there. And uh, that's what, you know, got my inner ear to stabilize in that axis. And then I put my head up and now it thinks we're tilted and that's what got that going yikes so, so yeah so I've, I've had some situations that uh um were uh pretty scary but no you know luckily i've not had to uh auto rotate i've had to get on the ground where i've gotten a, a transmission chip light and you know it's a land immediately because the chip just means it's picking up metal particles in the oil which means that the transmission is probably eating itself and uh obviously bad that's uh you know <laughs> something that you want to get on the ground immediately so uh, we've had to do that i've had tail rotor chip lights and uh, things that'll get your attention. You see and you're like, okay, that's not good. I need to find a place to get this on the ground now. And, uh, but, you know, the whole thing is is keeping your composure and not letting that get you to a point where now you start making bad decisions on top of that. And now you're compounding the problem. And that's that chain, that cycle that starts to happen. And, uh, you know, I've had another time in the clouds flying a, a, a Lakota to Kentucky and uh, with another pilot, started to have these things start starting to unravel. We were flying this instrument approach. We're in the clouds. Problem is, when you're when you're flying instruments, you got to be inside. 
Um, and you're looking at your instruments. You don't look outside. You can't see anyway because of the clouds. Well, we kind of got into this little pocket where you could see. So there's still clouds below us. I can't see the ground, but I just see all these clouds. But you get these, I had these tilted ones. And they, they call that altered planes of reference. So you think, your brain starts to think that that's yeah. the horizon, right? Yeah. So um, we're going on, on this instrument approach that it should be doing automatically. For some reason, it's not working. We can't figure out why, but I'm about to blow through the inbound course. So I'm going to have to do it manually because I don't have enough gas to do a go round. So I, we have to come inbound. And then the traffic controller turns us over to Tower too early. And I couldn't understand why. And then I called Tower and Tower doesn't even know who we are and why we're there. And I was like, man, this is just, you know, these are those, these are those things where they start compounding. I'm like, okay, I'll tell them who we are and what we need. And I need to come inbound on this approach. So he thankfully lets us do that. Well, now I'm, I'm like, hey, let me manually get this aircraft on course. So I start turning. Problem is I got drawn outside because of those clouds and I wasn't inside completely. I shouldn't have been looking outside. I should have been inside because then the, the co-pilot says, well, maybe not turn so steep. And I look down and I see we're at a 90 degree bank. I'm like, yeah, that's a good call. Oh goodness. Thank you. Wow. And so I got that thing straightened up, but then I started getting that anxiety and I can feel these things happening. And I know I have to get this to stop. I have to break this chain before this keeps you know, progressing to where it gets uh, uh, to be, it becomes a fatal situation. Um, Cause you know, while we review other crashes and, and uh, not to, you know, blame anyone, but to find out not how not to do it. I want to learn from that, you yeah, know, right. and I want to not have that happen to me. And I could, I could just feel that happening. Like where someone's going to be reading this about me, you know, in this situation right now. And uh, it was, it was really, um, it was really stressful and, and it, I just had to hyper-focus and try to slow everything down and bring everything together and make sure we stopped this chain and, and we finally did and we got that thing on the ground, which was good. And you brought it all the way from Quebec to California. Uh, the Bell 505, yeah. So we, um, I'm flying across uh, the United States. Um, uh, got to see some beautiful things again. Um, we stopped in uh, one of the fuel stops, actually an overnight stop was uh, in uh, Arizona, and uh, just a beautiful place there. Those red mountains and everything is just amazing. You know, Sedona, Sedona, absolutely yeah. love Sedona. Sedona's a trip. Yeah, it's a wonderful place. So, um, you know, just the things that I've gotten to do. You know, I've I've landed in uh, Lake Havasu at the airport there. Just uh, all these cool things that I've got to see from that aircraft was just unbelievable. So then, when we flew the thing to Carlsbad, California, to um, Hangar One, and uh, they're the outfitters that are going to install all of our, um, all of our uh, um, law enforcement equipment into it, and so we drop it off there and uh, and get a commercial flight and we come back home. And then you know um, a few months later it was complete and ready to go. So we flew down there, picked it up, and brought it back to Stockton. So we've been flying ever since. Tell me how what it's like flying over Stockton. You're you're now you are now the the pilot what's your what's your title right now give me your title the, the, everything you do you're you in addition to your military title um so i with uh with the air unit i'm just the chief pilot and uh i i help train the tfos but i have an uh a now a uh a chief tfo that trains the tfos as well that's a good thing right yes um but it's still i mean i i'm a night vision goggle instructor so i teach i train them on that um and then just train them on just air sense in general, because, you know, some people aren't really familiar with that. Um, it's just, just a different way of uh, thinking and having a situational awareness about you in the aircraft. Cause we just do things a little different in, in an aircraft. And, uh, 
And then I also always train them to, to um, fly. I'm always trying to tra- train them, teach them about different stuff as we're flying. And I try to get them some stick time. So that way, even the ones that aren't pilots, at least they have a fighting chance. If something were to happen to me, they'd be able to get the aircraft on the ground. And then I have three of my TFOs that now have their private pilot helicopter license. So I'm always uh, training and teaching them to get them prepared to get their commercial license. What do you want to tell the uh, Alpha Company third, the 140th out of Stockton that might be listening today? What do you feel about your, your company? Uh, it's, uh, I've been very fortunate to get to, uh, to be a part of that unit. It's, you know, there's something about uh, doing what we do that's just, uh, it's, just uh, it's, it's one of those jobs that just feels good to know that, that you're there for the state of California to help in, in, when anything goes wrong. And, uh, and I like that. And I love, absolutely love the people that I work with down there. They're just good people. And, uh, you know, your drill comes, you're like, oh, man, this is my weekend. I got to go to drill. But then once you get there, I'm just happy because I'm happy to see all, all my buddies. And uh, we're going to hang out and we're going to go fly helicopters and go train, you know. And uh, it's, it's a pretty, pretty amazing experience, I'll tell you that for sure. What's it feel like flying over Stockton, California and watching people commit crime and running from the scene? And what's that compared to going to war? So this... Uh, I mean, it can be because like, there's YouTube videos of you guys chasing yeah. folks around. What back where the old Hilton was? Something the guy ran in back there or something. Yeah. You guys were providing some play by play. The chief put out some uh, videos of you. You can people can go to YouTube and find. Uh, type in Dan Lowry Stockton PD or the or the helicopter. If you, if you uh, it's called Falcon One Zero. Falcon One Zero. Correct. If you, if you uh, go to YouTube and put Falcon One Zero in there, you'll see all the videos that have been released so far. And they're very cool. Yeah, I, I tell people, you know, I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. I say, you know, that guy's a hero, right? He stood on the door of George Bush. You know, I tell him all the, you know, I brag on you all the time. Well, you, you know, like I talked about earlier, there's times. Uh, I knew him when, you know, <laughs> there's times in uh, police work where it's like uh, mind numbingly boring and there's just nothing happening. And then the next second you're in a pursuit. Um uh, or you got a foot, uh, foot bail, you know, a foot pursuit or a person with a gun that you're overhead and helping by, uh, giving information to those ground units. Like I said, those are my customers. There's no reason for me to exist if it wasn't for them. That's why the whole reason for me to even be in that aircraft. Cause you can't do anything from the aircraft. No, there's nothing you can do, but advice. Yeah. I'm here to help yeah. them. That's, that's <laughs> there's no <laughs> from the helicopter on the no. bad guy. They got to go after him on foot on the ground yeah. or however. But um, to be able to to give this information that is um, uh, so important, so important, and to actually help when you're actually helping and you make a difference with those uh, those folks on the ground. That's why you're still doing it. It, it is it is so rewarding and it is so exciting. That's and, why you're not retired. Yeah, you, you just I absolutely love that. That you're is, married. Your beautiful yes, wife. Yes. You got a beautiful wife. How long have you been married? Where does she fit in all this? What year did you get married? Um, it was uh, 18 years ago. And, um, where were you? What was going on in your life? Oh, I was, uh, awesome. who played, who DJed the wedding? That would have been you. <laughs> so uh, where, where were you? Where in this resume were you? What year? 18 years ago. Is, yeah. Uh, so what? 13? Uh, two th- uh, no. 18, 20, 2004. Oh, three. So 2004. So, between the National Guard and ending being on the SWAT team, where'd you meet her? Um, at the at a hospital that she worked at as a nurse. Um, I had brought a suspect in that I was uh, in a fight with. And um, did you give him a beating? 
No, no. Was it like Patrick Swayze in the nurse in uh, Roadhouse? <laughs> Kelly Lynch where? <laughs> no, it, it was. So it, it, uh, <laughs> there was uh, there was a struggle. Uh, there's a foot pursuit and a little bit of a struggle. Um, and and you put your muscle around his neck and rinse the air out of his body. Well, we we no <laughs> certainly not. Uh, Anybody seen the weight room? Are you the weight room joke down there at the SPD? Are you the most buffed police no. officer? Who's bigger than you down there? Uh, no, I don't. You, I know that no, there's a joke out there no, when you come in. Come on. I nicely uh, <laughs> placed this gentleman under arrest. Um, he did resist. Um, so I go to take him to the hospital. Where? What hospital? Where? A county hospital, okay. San Joaquin County, to get him uh, get him cleared to go to jail. And as this uh, nurse walks in, you know, I'm injured too, but I, I was there for the, the suspect, not for me, but my arm was cut pretty good. And uh, so instead of going to the suspect, she came to me and got me over to the sink and started cleaning up my wounds. And I looked at this little uh, short, blonde, blue-eyed girl uh, California blonde. I was like, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> hey, I know I'm bleeding and shit, but what's up? <laughs> so you know, you go, "Hey, did it hurt?" And she goes, "What?" And you go, "Did it hurt when you fell?" What do you mean? <laughs> no. Did it hurt for me when you fell from heaven? No. <laughs> did you ever try those out? You don't no. need those. No. We're stud like you. You don't no. need those lines, no. right? No. You don't need those lines. Where'd you go on your first date? Oh man, you can't ask me stuff like this. I'm gonna get in trouble if I don't know. Yep, you're not gonna get in trouble. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, oh, you know what? Yeah, I do. I do remember. Yeah, she came to the house and we took a ride out to where she uh, used to board her horses and went out there and motorcycle ride or a car ride? No, a car ride. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I see Shadow One Zero. You got it out on your truck outside. I see a uh, uh, what do they I call that? A classic plate, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Shadow One Zero. Yes. What is it? That's uh, my army call sign. So once you become a pilot in command, um, you get a call sign. Nobody else is Shadow One Zero. Uh, no, just you, just me. Yes, yes. That's the shit. Yeah, and that's why uh, you got a new, you got a tat that says it. Uh, no, 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 no. You go right here. <laughs> Here's where it says it. This yeah. is a shadow. Pardon, pardon me. The light is being blocked by my Shadow One Zero. Uh, what do they assign you that thing? You pick those names. They assign you those names. Uh, the 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 shadow part is already chosen. The one zero. You pick the number. And I I chose one zero. And uh, so then when we came up with the call sign for uh, the PD helicopter, uh, they chose Falcon. So I chose one zero. And so so I could be uh, one zero in both of them. Would you change anything? I asked you about kids. You're you're forty nine. You're going to be fifty. You said. You you took me through your house and you show show tell me a couple of things you showed me on the wall in there. Well, I got the um, the flag um, from uh, when I was in the Gulf War. I flew that when we were there. My dad sent it to me, so I flew it there and I brought that back and um, so I have it that in a display. And uh, then an American flag that I flew on my last mission that I flew in Iraq, um, and and it's in its case and uh, some of our company patches, and then just some pictures that I have from through the years of uh, I got a picture of me and George Bush in the Oval Office at the White House. And you are young in that picture. Yeah. I got to get a picture of that. We're going to scan that and make sure we post a few of these pictures. Yeah, you can see this young boy that's turned into this uh, uh, this human, this huge human of uh, good. You're you're a human of good, Dan. <laughs> I appreciate you. That. Really are. I mean, uh, you you got to wear that. You have to wear it because you uh, you have to own it. It's you. You can't. What are you going to tell me that's going to change my mind? You're not. There's nothing you could do to change my mind. That's this week's show. Thank you, Manteca, for the listens, shares, and follows. If you'd like to support the podcast or be a sponsor, it's easy to get a hold of us. Mantecapodcast.com. Hit the envelope and send us a message. This is a podcast of Manteca's heavy hitters. You got a suggestion for me? Someone I should feature? Hit me up. 
Aaron Goodwin, local radio DJ, Randy Bubba Black. I'm now retired, a product of Manteca High School. Go Buffaloes. This is the digital age. I do this show about my hometown to set an audio timeline. This podcast is sole property of myself. It may not be reproduced in part or in whole without express written consent covered on the World Wide Web under fair usage. Add this podcast wherever you get yours. Mantecapodcast.com.